under the Pantheon of the Bloodgaudy, monthly podcast dedicated to exploring the very best RPGs of all time. I'm your host, ancient civilization-destroying alien, Cat Bailey, and who is with me, as always... I am female Krogan, Nadia Oxford. And who is our special guest? Do I get a special name? Was I supposed to come up with a special name? <laughs> Eric, no? get on the ball here. Come on, you're the uh, king of Mass Effect. I am, I am rampant, uh, no judicial uh, oversight uh, special agent Eric Van Allen. There we go. This month we'll be diving into Mass Effect, the RPG that inaugurated a new era for Bioware. We put in the top 25 RPGs of all time, but does it deserve to retain that position? And how much does the Legendary Edition add to it? We'll find out. As always, we'll be exploring its history, its greatest moments, and the soundtrack, after which we'll decide whether it deserves to be enshrined in the RPG pantheon. But first, Eric, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. We were talking about Mass Effect Legendary Edition during our weekly episode, but we wanted to have you on the Pantheon episode as well, because you have a whole dang podcast dedicated to Mass Effect, don't you? I do. Uh, alongside my day work at Destructoid, I am one half, I like to say, of Normandy FM, which is a, we just call it a retrospective podcast now, because we just cover various video games that, that you know, draw our attention, and we mostly don't... Uh, do much bioware stuff these days but we started out as a mass effect retrospective podcast and thus the name normandy fm so we have we spent a year podcasting through all of the mass effect games the entire mass effect series and we're already talking about potentially doing it again so that's <laughs> what lord <laughs> reset it do it all over again yeah just because you know the legendary edition comes around and we've been doing our own round tables of that which cat actually guested on our, our first one for for mass effect one and uh they've been going so well and we've been getting so many guests like cat who we did not get on the first time around that we were like maybe we ought to do this again and get some more people on and get some interesting new voices talking now that we're both like ingrained in the industry and have more like influence to bring on cool people to talk about this series. Yeah. This is the third time we are talking about the original mass effect on this podcast. The first time was on our, Oh, maybe the second time, actually the first time was at our PAX West 2018 panel with Austin Walker and Mike Williams and all of them when we were doing our mm -hmm. top 25 RPG countdown, this one. So now we're like circling back and I had originally been kind of like, I don't know if I want to, go back to the original Mass Effect. I was kind of hoping that our readers would pick Mass Effect 2 or Mass Effect 3 when Legendary Edition was on the was on the the docket, but nope, they wanted uh, us to talk about the original game, probably because we have a game club going on at the same time over on our Discord and people wanted to play through the original game and see how they felt about it. And we had a very lively game club this month i have to say on the discord so shout out to everybody from that that was a lot of fun but all right well we'll be getting to our discussion of mass effect in just a second but first of all here's a little housekeeping thank you so much to all of our patrons at the ten dollar level and above you get access exclusively to this episode as well to all of our specials including our Summer of the Rings deep dive into the Lord of the Rings trilogy, our respectives, retrospective on The Legend of Zelda, and, of course, our Witcher Watch. If you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor, go leave a review over on the podcatcher of your choice. I assume you enjoy the podcast because you're giving us money. I'd be a little surprised if you didn't. 
You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nani is at Nani Oxford. And of course, Eric Van Allen is at C Moosey, S-E-A-M-O-O-S-I. All right, let's get on to our Pantheon of the Blood God discussion of Mass Effect, released in November 20th, 2007 on the Xbox 360, May 28th, 2008 on PC, and December 4th, 2012 on PS3 via the trilogy. It was never released on the Wii U. Sad alien noises. Womp womp. (laughs) (laughs) Womp. <laughs> Sad Elcor noises. Regretfully, you could only play Mass Effect 3. <laughs> <laughs> now it's available through the Legendary Edition, which just came out in May and includes all the DLC, Mass Effect 2, Mass Effect 3, completely cleaned up everything. And in many ways, that was the impetus for this particular episode because for so many people, the original Mass Effect just did not hold up. They're like, oh my god, I, I can't go back. I have to play it on PC. Maybe I can play it on Game Pass or something. But this was, we basically had Mass Effect month as everybody picked up Mass Effect at the same time or discoursing about it on Twitter. So it's been a lot of fun. I'm a little curious about this because I came into this with a Legendary Edition and just hearing people say how practically unplayable the first one was before the legendary edition came out i mean the legendary edition does have some clumsiness to it which is i suppose just inherent to the engine and the style of the game but just i'm I'm curious to see what was cleaned up and what was uh kind of uh hard to deal with at the time a lot (laughs) i uh, (laughs) I i played mass effect for the first time originally in 2010 when my friend gave me his old xbox 360 and I remember at the time really enjoying it and it kept getting better and better and better as I got further and further until the end where I was like, wow, dang, that was a great RPG. But when I picked up Mass Effect 2, it was a lot like just being able to see clearly for the first time and going, whoa, man, like the difference in how it felt in terms of polish and everything between Mass Effect to Mass Effect 2 made honestly a huge difference. And I have my misgivings about Mass Effect 2, but I can't deny my feelings at the time, which was circa 2011, I was telling people, just do the motion comic for the original Mass Effect. You miss a lot, but Mass Effect 2 is when you should jump into it. Now, I don't necessarily feel that way, but that was definitely how I felt at the time because holy cow, Mass Effect was so janky on the original Mm -hmm. Xbox 360. (laughs) Yeah, it had some, some issues. It was a product of its environment and its time. But I will say that like the changes they made with the legendary edition may not have like completely washed those away, but it definitely made them a little bit more palatable by modern stat standards. And I think at least highlights like how unique that game was at the time, the way it straddled, you know, shooter and RPG in a way that the other two didn't as much. Like I'm honestly not surprised when you say that you put up, legendary edition you were hoping for mass effect 2 and 3 and you got mass effect 1 because this is an rpg podcast the rpg folks want to talk about mass effect 1 because it's the more rpg Mm. of the series yeah that's why we picked it for our top 25 rpg countdown and such because that was the it was the rpg one it was the most role-playing of all of them mass effect 2 and mass effect 3 definitely turned it into well while the role-playing elements certainly continued to exist just by the outsized impact that you could have on the story it definitely became much more of an action game with those two games yeah yeah all right well eric 
I mean, I've talked about my kind of personal history with Mass Effect, and of course, Nadia is coming into it for the first time, but you have a long history with Mass Effect, and I'd be curious to know uh, mm-hmm. how, how you discovered it for the first time, discovered your love for this series. I yeah, it's it's a weird road. I think I touched on some of this when we did the when we did the last podcast, but um essentially I was like a Call of Duty bro uh when I was <laughs> when I was younger. Um you? Yeah, Call of Duty and like rhythm games. Like I was really into Guitar okay, Hero cool. and Rock bands. But yeah, like totally the stuff that all the other dudes were playing. You know, I'd get on late at night and be like, Oh, let's play some Modern Warfare 2, man. I had so many hours in Modern yeah. Warfare 2. And now I play Valorant, so nothing's really actually changed. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, I, every once in a while, you know, I'd venture around. You know, I'd go play something like Final Fantasy Thirteen or something like that. So um, I know real big delve off of the mainstream. There is Final Fantasy, <laughs> but uh, Mass Effect was one of them that I had read about in a Game Informer at one point. I was like, oh, this looks really neat. Maybe I should give it a try. You know, I've got some money to. Uh, to go get something so i'll go try it out and because i was under the age of 18 uh, i had to get my mom to go with me to go get it and that meant uh that several weeks later when fox news started up its thing about (laughs) the alien side boob epidemic uh, and Jeff Keeley was on there valiant defend valiantly defending gaming against (laughs) the side news yeah uh we're turning the the children into i don't know monsters with the alien side boob uh it's i was really worried that my mom was going to somehow see a segment on like the today show and and find out that she had bought me the alien side boob game Uh, (laughs) (laughs) did she find out i don't think she has but i've told this story on a few podcasts now so mom if you ever do listen to my podcasts and stuff uh you bought me the alien side boot game (laughs) (laughs) good job parent of the year yeah um but i mean look my my parents like i was playing quake when i was like eight years old i i don't think they would have actually had a problem with it so yeah like mass effect just kind of became this game you know i I really liked the first one and i really really liked the second one um and i never got big into the online fandoms or anything like that it was just kind of something that it was a series that I ended up liking a lot. I had a lot of like just internalized passion for it. And Uh um, around, I want to say 2014, 2015, which is when uh, my now podcast co-host Kenneth Shepard and I met, um, we would talk a little bit about how much we both like Bioware games and Mass Effect games. And then N7 Day 2018, I'm I'm probably getting that right, though Ken will probably say I'm getting it wrong. Um, he was like, man, I've just always, how have we been friends for so long? We've never talked about Mass Effect on a podcast together. And he was like, I want to do an entire series podcasting about all of Mass Effect. And I was like, okay, you know what? Fine, whatever. I, I thought he was bluffing. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was not. And that's how Normandy FM got started. And uh, here I am. And through doing it, I've just gained like it went from being a series I would have definitely called one of my favorite of all time to being like just this thing that has marked all of my growth in the games industry as I have gone on. Um, It's something that I've been able to look at and see like, I can see how much I've changed, how much I've grown in Mass Effect. And I think that's like a common thread for a lot of people that Mm -hmm. end up liking Mass Effect a lot is it ends up syncing up with their life in really interesting ways and becoming this, this demarcation line of different points in their life. Uh, so yeah, it's, 
it's hard to play these games and not feel a little bit of yourself and your own personal growth in them as well. So um, that's my personal history from gamer bro to gamer podcaster. <laughs> a remarkable journey. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about what was happening in November 2007. I was living in Japan at the time, so I was completely removed from American culture. But I did have a sense of what was happening in the gaming realm. And let me tell you, in games, it was a heck of a time to be alive. It was one of the all-time great years in games, in my opinion, right up there with 1998, 2001, and 2017. Here's some of the games that came out in November of 2020, or sorry, 2007, in addition to Mass Effect. They include Super Mario Galaxy, November 1st, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, November 5th, Crisis, November 13th, Rock Band, November 20th, Uncharted, also November 20th, and that's not even including Halo 3, which it came out earlier in the year, and of course, Bioshock. Basically, if you like shooters, you're doing pretty well in 2007. It was a very good time for the shooty-shooty-bang-bang bang genre, but they were actually very high-quality shooty-shooty-bang-bangs. Uh, it was actually, yeah, quite an interesting time for for video games. Uh, we have talked in the past, Kat, how it was a little dark for JRPGs, but if you wanted, like, as you said, Western shooters, uh, and even I, like some of the ones that came out, it was also a really great time for, uh, this, this is funny, around that time I was writing about video games, and I had taken a job with Colin Campbell writing about game ads, and I don't even remember what I was writing it for, but it was like kind of an analysis of the game ads running at the time. And I remember uh, deconstructing the Halo 3 ad, which was really good. Apparently that panorama they made, or diorama rather, is um, part of it's in Microsoft's offices somewhere. And parts of it have gone off to like private collectors. And I would just love to, I would love to own a little piece of that. It was so cool. I was in high school. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I was a wee baby. Um in fact, I remember I was literally just doing the math on my hands to remember when it was because I think I remember there was a guy in my gym class who used to talk about Halo all the time. And then he like mysteriously disappeared for literally an entire week. And they said he was sick, but uh, I'm pretty sure Halo 3 had come out. And he just like <laughs> skipped school for a week to play. It. I appreciate that. Man. Uh, yeah, look, he, he was dedicated. He, we, we respect that. But uh, yeah, like this was. I had gotten my Xbox 360 at some point, and I don't even remember what games I got with it to launch besides, um, like, you know, the Marvel Ultimate Alliance that came with it and all that. But um, I remember Call of Duty Modern Warfare being one of the first games that I played on that station. And just the part where you're, like, running up the side of the boat and all that is still, ooh, can put myself right back in my room right when I was playing it. Uh, so it's... This was definitely like a big year in gaming. And I think Mass Effect is also reflective of that because this was a big step for a studio as well. Nadia, you were saying it was a bad time for JRPGs and it's true, it was. But this was also the year that The World Ends With You came out. So it was a good year okay, in that so regard. Everything's redeemed. Oh, yeah. All is well. Yes, absolutely. So I will say that at this time I was playing a lot of Mario Galaxy. That was the game that I ended up buying because I had a Nintendo Wii and I really enjoyed it. And I was playing it with my partner and she was playing as the little pointer device and she kept poking me <laughs> off the edge and laughing maniacally because she was a little a bit of a troll. All right. These were the movies that were topping the box office in 2007. American Gangster Enchanted B-Movie, which Hell sure yeah. was a thing. Oh, and of course, it's a meme movie. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. 
But of course, I think we'll all re- remember the two movies that came out at this time. Uh, there will be blood in No Country for Old Men too. My dad uh, went to go see No Country for Old Men in the theater, and he actually stood up at the end of the movie and screamed, "Oh no!" When it was like got ended on a cliffhanger. Oh no! Because <laughs> he hates movies like that. He just stood up and screamed, "Oh no!" I hate suspense. <laughs> uh, very much so. And as for what was happening in the news, this was when the Writers Guild went on strike, which had a great oh, impact on a yeah. lot of the TV shows that were happening, most notably on Heroes, which was already a mess, but the Writers Guild mm. really did not help that show. Anyone can write. Oh, we screwed up a whole bunch of shows. Speaking oh, as someone who watched Heroes when it was airing, I don't think anything could have helped that show after it had one pretty good first season and then just woof. <laughs> You didn't mention that Transformers came out in 2007. Oh, was really? Things. Was that that year? M- Michael Bay movie. Yeah. What? No. Mm, I'm I'm Googling. It's a 2007 Transformers 2007. You Googled it? Well, whatever year it was, I saw it in the theaters. Mr. Wikipedia says. Oh. <laughs> Mr. We all trust Mr. Wikipedia around here. Professor Wikipedia. I remember it coming out in 2007. That's weird. Yeah. Or 2000, I mean, 2006, but it did come out in 2007. Well, how about that? And it changed Hollywood forever. Ugh. <laughs> it sure did. I've seen every single one of those movies in the theater, unfortunately. The first one was fun. The first one was really interesting to watch. And then it just, well, it all went downhill from there. But, I saw uh, two at midnight and the entire theater was laughing at it by the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen the original 80s movie in the theaters, too. So that's what came I didn't up. know you're a big Transformers fan, Nadia. You must be if you were seeing them all in the theaters. It's for my husband. Uh, uh, I kind of know some of it through absorption. Mm. It's like wrestling, basically. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's talk about Mass Effect's background and development. Of course, it was developed by BioWare. We all know BioWare around here. It was founded in 1995 by the doctors Ray Musicoya and Greg Zeschuk, as well as Augustine Yip, Trent and Brent Oster, and Marcel Zeschuk. It found success with Baldur's Gate before going mainstream with KOTOR. Very strong D&D lineage with Bioware. Mm -hmm. Mass Effect was their most ambitious game to that point, and I would argue the most transformative. Just a few months after Mass Effect came out, they were purchased by EA. Ouch. It's, It's bizarre to think about... (laughs) it's bizarre to think about what the studio was before and after mass effect like it really is you can map a lot of the differences in in bioware of old and in bioware of new just by did it come out before or after mass effect i was reading jason schreier's press reset book because we had him on the podcast just recently actually and one of the points that was made in that book was that uh, they were talking about how origin was acquired by ea and origin was famously Mm -hmm. basically destroyed by its time with ea and you know it had ultima and everything and wing commander and it was a real tragedy Uh, the problem got to be that ea gave them a lot of money and more or less left them alone to do their own thing and these studios didn't know what to do with all of these extra Mm -hmm. all this extra money and resources and so they would just spin, they would grow like crazy, right? Uh, trying to be super ambitious because they had all this money and they're like, well, now we got this corporate back and we're going to do an amazing job. And then 
when they when you know these projects weren't materializing the same way or they were really struggling which in some ways origin did ea came around and said oh, you've got you're taking all this money what the hell are you doing and they're like i don't know <laughs> so it became a it wasn't necessarily ea's meddling per se it was just a com a combination of you know expectations from public shareholders combined with not knowing how to spend all this money. And then when they couldn't spend all that, when they were spending all the money kind of poorly, EA executives got super annoyed and that's when they started meddling. So it's kind of a toxic stew, you want to say. And I, I think Bioware has definitely enough. be impacted by it over the years. Yeah, just enough rope to hang themselves, in other words. Yeah, that's yeah. a good uh, description of it. <laughs> I don't think the long-term effects of the EAification of Bioware were really present until we got past the mass effect trilogy. I mean, there are certainly parts aspects of the mass effect trilogy that have some of it in there, but they were all kind of things that you could set to the side because the trilogy itself was so good that you didn't really bother that. Oh, mass effect three was also like the loot crate game. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, obviously everyone is happy as long as the games are still good. And then once the games start to not be so good, then oof, duh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> was it mass effect 2 when project ten dollar came around and they were giving you specific dlc if you were the willing Cerberus to network yeah they were just trying yeah. to keep you from buying it used oh, oh i forgot I about that i don't remember if that was part of that tie-in or not they did have the Cerberus network which added a bunch of like armor dlc and stuff like that um they had the a nice character as day edition. one DLC. Oh, I mean, Javik, yeah. In in mm -hmm. Mass Effect 3, they had Javik. Um, that was kind of the thing that everyone was doing at that point. Although mm -hmm. I think Javik in specific is like maybe the most egregious, egregious example of that. Um, you know, who cares if you don't have a Batman suit on day one, but not having the only Prothean like, crewmate in all of Mass Effect have him be a DLC. Ooh. That sucks. Yeah, so that's why the Legendary Edition is very good, because now all the DLC is in there. Feel free to chime in about this, Eric, but to my mind, what defined Bioware at this time, it was really ahead of the curve in many ways in the way that it wrote its characters. Um, there was a certain Bioware archetype, I want to say, that people really got to know the most in, um, in KOTOR, but maybe appeared for the first time in Baldur's Gate where they had a certain sense of humor, a winking sense of humor, but by the standard of the time, their writing was definitely a lot better than the competition. They did a really good job of developing romance uh, relationships. Uh, that was like a Bioware staple, I want to say. And I would say that mm -hmm what defined Bioware RPGs was definitely the interactions between the characters. And you see that in Mass Effect a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that granted, I'm not as familiar with some of their earliest stuff like, like Baldur's Gate. Um, I think the earliest game I've played of theirs is probably KOTOR and I haven't actually finished KOTOR. I've only played about half of it myself, but I've like gained the rest of it through cultural osmosis and such as you kind of have to in the games industry these days. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, like Bastila and the entire, I mean, the whole twist of KOTOR was 
extremely, I think, ahead of its time. It's still one that people talk about today. There was like a celebrity that was tweeting about when are we going to get the next KOTOR uh, recently, like around May the 4th. And of course, um, I think that game still stands out. But you even look at stuff like Jade Empire and uh, Bioware was way ahead of the curve in terms of we're going to have romance in our games. And we're going to have characters that have really interesting missions and really interesting backstories. We're going to have this idea of a crew that follows you around and you build your crew over time and taking certain ones with you on certain missions might unlock different dialogues that you might not otherwise have. So say if like you're infiltrating the hideout of this secret clan of super soldiers or something and you bring someone with you who they used to be part of that group, then you're going to get some extra dialogue. And that's, you know, sounds pretty basic by today's standards, but uh, Bioware was doing it really well and really early on. And yeah, I'd, I'd say for most games uh, of theirs, but especially Mass Effect, especially as the series went on, like the relationships and the characters were a large part of the draw of this series. I like how the... Um... Uh, obviously, you, you can skip the elevator loading scenes now if you want, but back in the day, I suppose, they used the character conversation just to mask the loading times on the elevator. Mm-hmm. Like, I've been actually listening to them instead of skipping them, and I just like the one where Rex is like, says to Garrus, so, who would win in a fight? You or Commander Shepard? And Garrus is just like, just like, offended that he even mm-hmm. asked this question. Like, how dare you question uh, Commander Shepard's abilities like that? And Rex is just like, yeah. So. <laughs> Thought so. <laughs> Thought so, yeah. Yeah, it's... um. It's really wild going back and playing through these games and just seeing all those little bits because for all the parts that you remember of Mass Effect, like um, you know, the the big character moments and the giant resolutions and the galaxy-spanning consequences, uh, there's so much in here that's just little stuff. And I think that even like speaks to another one of Bioware's strengths, especially Mass Effect, is their world building and galaxy building, whatever you want to call it. Like Mass Effect 1 is where it really shines that they build this galaxy that you just want to keep exploring that there's always something new and dangerous around the corner and you always want to go find it um well one of our our moments on this list will come up later and be a better springboard for that but it's uh it's just a cool galaxy like the idea of all these different alien races that have so many different approaches to the way that they live and breathe in in the the universe of mass effect and all of them coming together on one giant space station and all that. Oh, it's great. I love it. Another element that really defined Bioware around this time, and to some extent still continues to define it, is the continuity with its lead developers. A lot of major developers kind of undergo turnover over the years as, you know, developers come to go, come and go. Maybe they start their own projects, et cetera. But much of the core leadership around Mass Effect stuck around through the entirety of the trilogy and, in fact, continued to stick around all the way up until, well, around Anthem or so. And several, some of them have left. But uh, I think that, con- that continuity is, was cited as one of the factors for why the Mass Effect trilogy was ultimately successful because you could have like one coherent vision, one coherent thread running through the entire thing. Uh, And that vision was articulated by its director, Casey Hudson. He previously directed KOTOR. He later became GM of Bioware before departing in December 2020. He he helmed Bioware through 
the trilogy. And I think, you know, regarding there are some shakeups and stuff that have been controversial and all that, um, especially in terms of uh, another person on this list who who later departed uh, on the series. But uh, to lead a team through those three games, and especially under the conditions that they had to turn around those games in the time they had and and deal with a lot of the blowback that they got on especially Mass Effect 3, um, did an admirable job, I think. Uh, and then, you know, he came back and Anthem happened and he left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the weird footnote on all this is like have a really incredible run through all these different games, you know, stretching from Baldur's Gate 2 all the way up through Mass Effect 3 and then, you know, leave and, and head off to Microsoft, but then later on come back lead anthem and then depart (laughs) that's like that's like the weird weird footnote at the end of it like if you came back to your high school to help them win the championship game and then at the very end you like punt it into the other team's end zone and somehow give them a touch (laughs) back (laughs) and then then you're like well shucks and then walk away (laughs) sorry everyone out as planned (laughs) you showed up and spun up like three new projects, one of them being Mass Effect Legendary Edition. Yes. And he was like, yeah. I'm out. Bye. Yeah, he, he at least got that stuff spinning up. So I, I will put some respect on the name for that. Anthem is the most public part of that. And it's it's hard to, to disassociate anything from that. Some more of the major developers. The lead design was Apresin Wanamanuk, still at BioWare and is the design director on Anthem. The writer was Drew Karpishin, who departed after Anthem, I believe, and is now over at Watsi. And then there's Derek Watts, who was the artist on Mass Effect, cites Sid Mead as a major inspiration for the series, saying the problem was if you tried to draw something to look like Sid Mead, it looked like a really bad version of Sid Mead. So we just kept some of his visual cues, the way he does his line work, his panels, we kept the vehicle design as simple as possible. Sid Mead, of course, is a legend of RPG, or sorry, of sci-fi design. So uh, best known for his work on Blade Runner, but also designed the Turn A Gundam in Turn A Gundam with the big old mustache. Oh, there you go. Pretty dope. Why uh, does he have a mustache? I... <laughs> a lot of Japanese fans were asking the same thing, Nadia. <laughs> okay, good. Um... The weird thing about Carpesian specifically is that he departed in 2012. So I think, hmm. and I'm double checking myself on this right now, he's not credited on Mass Effect 3, which some fans have have noted over the years <laughs> um, when, you know, when they're trying to talk about the reasons why they might not like Mass Effect 3. He has, he did eventually go back to Bioware to work on Old Republic and Anthem, but, uh, Right now, I think he's over at, yeah, he's over at Archetype, which is the, hey, local Austin studio uh, hey. that's that's working with some other former Bioware folks like James Olin. Um, so it's that's kind of the weird one because he's also written a lot of like Mass Effect lore. Um, he wrote three books for the game uh, and it's not having him in the credits of Mass Effect 3 was like a whole thing. But yeah, Drew definitely was like a big influence on a lot of the early writing and like codex stuff and all that in mass effect one to the point that i think they put easter eggs of his books in mass effect two uh newbie question here was mike Lightblaw not a writer on the game that's a good question more dragon age okay yeah. i was uh i was just looking i was looking at the writers and i thought i saw his name but i was just uh maybe i'm wrong 
just because I was reading an interview with, with him at, on uh, the Star Control thing, and he he was a, a contributor to it. So yeah, he contributed writing to Mass Effect, but I think people always traditionally associate him with uh, Dragon Age. Yeah, right. I figured alongside like um, like David Gator and stuff like that. Um, a little bit more Dragon Age side. I think Drew Carpegian is the one that people associate with Mass Effect. Speaking of people that we associate with Mass Effect, the composers. So the main composer was Jack Wall, and he was assisted by Sam Hillick. And they also brought in Richard Jacques and David Cates uh, for assistance. And uh, apparently the way it started out was that Sam Hillick, or like Jack Wall wasn't available initially. And so Sam Hillick did some of the initial work making the music, including, for example, that wonderful music that plays when you go into the um, into the star the map, galaxy map to go yeah. around the galaxy. Oh, One of the best kind jam. of Mass Effect songs. Yeah, there's there's so much good music in Mass Effect. And I know like some songs in particular always get shouted out. Like um, I think Ignite or reignite is the one from mass effect three the the like very soft piano tone that becomes kind of a motif throughout the whole game and um there's the suicide mission from mass effect 2 has incredible music yeah. but honestly the whole series just has a really good sense of i'd say like cinematic music you know the kind that really emphasizes its big sweeping moments and all that but there's also just some really wild stuff like that little bum, 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 ba, da, da, bum, 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 in the galaxy map and like all the music in the clubs and stuff like that. It's 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 very good. It's it's something that you don't notice right away, but you yeah. listen later. Like they put up the soundtrack as part of the lead up to Legendary Dish for people to listen to. And I was just like, wow, I can like I, I hear this music and I can place exactly where in the game I heard this and I feel like I'm there again. The reference material was Tangerine Dream, Evangelist, and Blade Runner, and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. according to Jack Wall. 80s synth music sort of used as an orchestra, which is kind of a big musical direction for a certain sci-fi back in the 80s. So they sort of wanted to return to that idea in some way. And what they kept saying was, imagine you're in an orchestra and somebody's playing a synthesizer on stage with the orchestra. Hell yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually surprised by the... The tone of the music, I think that really took me off guard. Even though I am a little familiar with Mass Effect music because of like I listen to game radio stations and stuff like that, but just kind of being in, a, in an area and suddenly hearing like kind of that more '80s synthesizer style music, uh, I appreciated that very much. Especially when they're showing the uh, the text at the very beginning while it's playing yeah. the, the yeah. swelling music, uh, and then mm -hmm. Mass Effect. It's very Top Gun. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> The one that always gets me, and I think this is a thing with video games because Kingdom Hearts does the same thing and it gets me every time too, but when it uses like main menu music to like give you emotions at the right time. So mm -hmm. the main menu music in Mass Effect 1 specifically, I think is Vigil's theme. And it's kind of the one they use when they just really want to hit you with like the grandeur and scale of this universe. And it, it just sounds like, you know, open horizons. You're like, you know you're on a shuttle launching into space and it's all like rumbly and stuff like that but then you get to the top it's just like oh <laughs> <"Aww." laughs> 
<laughs> yeah and it's like it's so good and it's actually i think it plays during the epilogue of mass effect 3 um but i reference that to like kingdom hearts because of the little um dearly beloved piano mm -hmm. theme that always plays on the main menu of a kingdom hearts game um it's just really smart music choices and really good use of like knowing when to drop in a theme at the right yeah. time just to elicit the right emotion Mass Effect production began around 2004, not long after KOTOR, in which the doctor sat down with Casey Hudson and came up with the idea of a space opera. It was pitched immediately as a trilogy. They wanted the whole thing to be on a single iteration of Xbox. Much of the pre-production was about building new technology. Uh, specifically, they were making a lot of design tools and everything. And when they were making the Legendary Edition, they were unearthing a lot of these tools and going, what the heck is this? This is insane. So <laughs> it's kind of a messy <laughs> process, I want to say. It was designed in Unreal Engine 3 and BioWare. And a lot of developers, I think at that time, were still struggling with that kind of technology. And BioWare especially were struggling with it because this was by far their most ambitious RPG to date at that time. They had never made a, a shooter, and it showed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, a little bit, just a bit. Yeah. The cover shooting in that game is kind of wonky. It's, you know, sometimes you do the little wacky walk. Sometimes you sprint <laughs> and you run into a wall and you just kind of keep running into it for a little bit before Shepard's like, oh, right, cover, go into cover. But I don't know. It's, it's the little wrinkles that you learn to love. Shepard gets the job done either way. Yes. <laughs> this was there. This was... Bioware deciding to make their own space opera, which meant that they got to really dig in and do what kind of Bioware does best, which is world building. Bioware absolutely loves world building. And this is what um, the artist Watts said about this. He said, usually we tried to approach each race the same way. Before we got started with the concept phase, we would ask write, we would ask writing for a short paragraph describing who this race was. What is their background? Give us some specifics about what they want to see in this race without going getting into too much detail. We just want sort of a bit of direction before we get started. Once we have that short paragraph, we usually give it a concept artist, and at this point we call it phase one. We give the concept artist a lot of freedom to try and explore different ideas, really try to get to know what this alien is about. We're kind of unsure, and we're unsure what we're going to want this scene to look like. Once we get a few concepts for phase one, we try to hone ideas. And they just keep defining it and defining it. And they say, what is the visual language of their clothes? What is the shape of their face? What's iconic? Is this going to work with our conversation system? That kind of thing. And I'll say that when it comes to the aliens, the Mass Effect trilogy works because the Turians and the Salarians and the Krogans and all of them are just excellent and Mass Effect Andromeda, mm -hmm. in my opinion, does not work because the aliens aren't, they just don't work very well. They're just not good. You don't get any aliens in Andromeda that you don't already know outside the Angara and the Ket. And both of those are just kind of like, I think we talked about this on our Mass Effect one round table, but Mass Effect aliens that are always like really fan favorites or really draw you in, or are there something that has a really interesting backstory like the Drell? Uh, in Mass Effect 2, or in the case of Mass Effect 1, it's the ones that are not just like, oh, you know, it's it's a blue lady, or oh, it's a <laughs> it's a reptile bird guy. Like 
it's it's the um i mean for me it's the elcor and the hanar and the volus and even the batarians to some extent the batarians are kind of you know they're they're grading on purpose but uh it's always fascinating to see all these different races and how they interact and especially like every time i see a hanar i'm like how does how do you drive a ship how do you operate mm. ship controls? <laughs> do you have pedals? Little technical um, things. They 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 grab yeah. the wheel. Beep beep. But I want them to be in like some weird Hanar looking ship, like a space jellyfish that just flies everywhere and they control it with their mind. You know, that's that's what I want. But it's the same with like the Elcor. I'm like, they move so slow, and I'm like, how how do you do things in life? I, I want to know more about you. And I think that's just that's good alien design when you see this really cool species and you would just want to learn all about their culture and how they developed. And to Bioware's credit, I think some of the cooler stuff they do is explaining these species, not just in the context of how this individual species rose up, but also like how they all rose up together because humanity are like the newcomers in the space. Mm -hmm. They've only been around by Mass Effect one, I think for 26 years and they, um, you know they're fresh on the scene they've they've had one war already because it's humanity but it's, <laughs> um all the other races have like centuries of history with each other and some of their like you know you have the the hanar and the drell you have the volus and the asari um even the the elkhorn and the asari like, like they all have ways that they tie into each other and they have history with each other that makes it all so fascinating and bioware found really interesting ways to be tying that all together finding things like the krogan rebellion and the rachni wars that can really create these inter interesting tensions that pan out over years and years and years that you're having to deal with now as you know as shepherd you're walking in and you're like oh you know i gotta navigate all these species and races that all work together but also have very old hostilities that i'm still trying to fully comprehend at all times uh, it's I'm very, just, very good. I'm just wondering when the Alcor decided to make it a priority to discover light speed travel because they're so slow. What do they care about traveling at light speeds? They're just, they're just chill, you know? They, they're so great. They're just like, whatever. Sure, we'll do it. We're Alcor. so just, nice. That's one thing I noticed out. walking around the, the Citadel. It's like everyone's a little bit like, oh, oh, God is a human. The Alcor's mm -hmm. always on my side, man. The, the setting of Mass Effect 1, or, or Mass Effect, and reminds me a bit of the setting of Babylon 5, where humans are also relative newcomers to the galactic stage, but have risen very quickly and are mm -hmm. part of a console with much more alien, old, much older alien species, and in fact run afoul of one of those alien species and end up getting into a war with them, similar to how the, the humans mm -hmm. do in Mass Effect, and almost get annihilated by those aliens in babylon 5 it's the humans in the mimbari and if i'm correct um babylon 5 was heavily influenced by sci-fi literature like alfred bester and uh childhood's end and that kind of thing and i think mass effect similarly has a lot of those connections to classic sci-fi literature i see you nodding a lot eric yes yeah um they they definitely do i'm not I'm not a huge proponent of sci-fi literature, which is kind of weird considering how much I love Mass Effect, but I've never really gotten into reading a lot of sci-fi books and novels outside of one very 
specific i got burned once let's say that (laughs) (laughs) and um and maybe soured me on the whole thing but uh yeah it's you can definitely tell there's so much influence from even you know star trek obviously and stuff like that but it's it's very clear that this is not just them doing a space opera but them doing a space opera informed by the many space operas that came before them yeah like uh i can't remember who wrote it but the uplift series is a huge influence i think i was saying this back in 2010 but one of the things i liked better about babylon 5 than mass effect was babylon 5 took the ancient evil as returning thing and actually did some pretty interesting stuff with it and kind of subverted your expectations in that regard uh, with how it dealt with its ancient evil alien species whereas mass effect is plays it much more straight and it's just like no they're here to uh to destroy everybody sorry uh you're all gonna die now <laughs> and they they play it much more like mm, how should i say lovecraftian where you're dealing with mm-hmm. basically cthulhu in space in many ways so space squid yeah i mean i really like the way that they introduce the reapers in in mass effect one like just there's so much of it that is like hey you you have no freaking clue what you're dealing with like mm. you can understand saren because saren is one dude with a gun that you can stop you don't comprehend what we are and that was actually i'm finishing i just finished my playthrough of mass effect 2 recently and uh they referenced that how even in Mass Effect 1, they were planting the seeds of the idea that Sovereign is not just like one person, but Sovereign is a multitude of processes and and AIs and interlinking platforms that are all evolving and changing over time. And like just this entity that you cannot begin to comprehend that has lived for ages and will continue to, to live ages after you. It will outlive everything you've ever known. It's, oh, it's just creepy. It's good. <laughs> I like the good space horror stuff. There needs to be more space horror. Where's my dead space at? Let's <laughs> get that trilogy next. <laughs> In many ways, Mass Effect is a grab bag of a lot of different influences. They cite everything from Firefly to Blade Runner to Star yeah. Control 2, which you added this to the notes, Nadia. Tell me a little bit about its connections to Star Control. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Well, there's actually a fantastic uh, article on Hardcore Gaming 101 called Now and Forever The Legacy of the Star Control 2 Universe. And this goes into quite a bit of depth, amongst other things, about how Star Control 2, uh, old PC game, which is, has been re-released as the Urquan Masters and is free to download, uh, how it influenced Mass Effect. And there is actually uh, um, quotes from, that's why I mentioned Mike Laidlaw, because uh, he mentioned how it influenced the story for Mass Effect. 
Mm. You have a lot of parallels between the races and as someone who has always been a, a big, big Star Control 2 fan and nearly punched a wall when you heard about Toys for Bob being absorbed by Activision. Mm-hmm. I uh, really appreciate what, like seeing those those parallels from my point of view. Like In Star Control 2, you have a very big, hulking, rhinoceros-like race called the Thradish, who are extremely aggressive and infamous for fighting with each other and bombing each other back to the Stone Age. And when you get to uh, Star Control 2, the timeline there, they have already bombed each other and rebuilt 13 times, and they're called themselves now Culture 13 because that's what they're on. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hanar, those are little jellyfish dudes that you love, right, Eric? Yeah. Um, they're very similar, except a little less creepy than the Micon, which are like a fungal race that talk a lot like the, the Hanar do. And uh, they don't really worship... Uh, Enkindlers. They don't really worship the Enkindlers, but they do worship something called Jeffawup. To this day, no one really knows what that is. But everything they say is, is hilarious and silly, but really, really, really creepy. Uh, instead of the Enkindlers, you have the uh, Precursors who built um, the ship that you live in. It's, it, it is basically the uh, Star Control 2's uh, answer to the Citadel, except you can't really interact with it nearly as much as you can with the Citadel. So there's a, a lot, a lot of parallels going on. And... Um, yeah, I'm just, uh, I think it's uh, kind of fun to look at those, not to mention the Reapers and the Urquan and the parallels between that. But I'm still kind of new at at Mass Effect, so um, I'm sure I'll see more as I go along. Yeah, I'd be particularly particularly interested for you to like get to Mass Effect 2 and actually visit Tichanka, which is the homeland, the, the homeworld of the Krogan, because they have some bits in there that are like, you you can talk to a shaman, a Krogan shaman there who's explaining to you like the rites of passage of the Krogan and all that uh, for, for storyline reasons. And Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, like he makes a comment that's like, and if it all goes bad, we'll just all destroy each other again. And the Krogan will be stronger for it. And you can, and you can (laughs) be like, wait, you're talking about nuclear war, like the kind that literally turned Tachanka into the wasteland that it is right now and you're like cool with that and he's like yeah because whatever comes up after that will be stronger and yeah. eventually we'll we will be so strong that no nuclear war could end us that no war could end us and we will spread across the galaxy and and conquer all of it and i'm just like man krogan are kind of messed up but i do respect it <laughs> krogan <laughs> like... <laughs> also take i think a lot of influence from cat and i were talking in another mass effect episode about uh we played master of orion as kids do you play master orion ever mm-hmm. the the sakura race were uh, lizard-like people who spread like expansionalists and were extremely aggressive for it they're the race i always played as so yeah i think it's funny that nadia secretly identifies as a krogan oh i'm totally a krogan <laughs> Well, the biggest change to Mass Effect was definitely the combat, which was a third-person shooter, tactics shooter, and it had a cover system, which was very in vogue at this time. Gears of War had come out Mm -hmm. the year before. Everybody was into cover systems. And this is what Casey Hudson said to IGN at the time. Our goal was to evolve the tactical squad-based gameplay of KOTOR into the more familiar third-person shooter-style interface. Lots of people really enjoyed the semi-turn-based combat of KOTOR, but it also represented a barrier to many other players who wanted something more real-time. So we set out to create a real-time combat system that still had the tactical fun and RPG-style team coordination that made KOTOR a lot of fun. And you know what, guys? We'll get into this in a bit, but it was kind of a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly. 
And of course, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the characters who really define Mass Effect in so many ways. Mark Muir and Jennifer Hale played the various iterations of Shepard. People love to be like uh, Jennifer Hale. People love to laud Jennifer Hale's version of Shepard. And honestly, it's great. I've actually never played as male Shepard. And I'm always surprised when I see male Shepard in the kind of uh, in the in the trailers and everything. But maybe a little more a little more of a wooden kind of uh, performance. Yeah. The way I've always framed it is that Mark Mears' performance is very good if you're playing the Paragon ideal of Shepard, the sort of upstanding soldier who's going to bring peace to the galaxy and all that. You know, like, stop fighting in there, kids. <laughs> hey, you he's, very mu- he's very much <laughs> like, a, I'm going to pull the Normandy over if you don't stop fighting back there, uh, Talion Legion. But, back uh, to Winnipeg. Yeah. But Jennifer Hale, for whatever reason, ended up just putting a little bit more style on it i'd say like just putting a little bit more of that roguishness that like you know when we talk about like the the kirk to jack bauer scale and all that definitely leaning more on like the um you know agent who will get anything done you know you're a loose cannon jennifer (laughs) (laughs) you're in your Uh, badge (laughs) and like but also with a little bit of like snark and stuff, like just delivers some of those lines in a, in a way, just more charismatic way. It's just, I'm not trying to dump on, I feel bad because I feel like Mark Mears performance gets dumped on unfairly just because Jennifer Hale became so iconic in that role. And there was also a lot of grumbling over it because in a series that, lauded like being able to create your shepherd it was male shep that was always put you know front and center and so i think that made a lot of femshep players rightly uh mm-hmm. annoyed and perturbed because they you know and and that led to mass effect 3 they had the reversible box art cover that had um male shep on one side femshep on the other side but yeah it's, it's jennifer hale like it's <laughs> it's so good she's so good and the only bummer is that uh her, her romance options aren't too great uh in the series especially if you're trying to not just romance a dude so yeah we were discussing i think in the weekly episode about mass effect legendary edition how it really speaks to the how games were at the time that it felt like this giant fight to get any sort of recognition whatsoever for the female version of shepherd and it's only been within you know the past few years that people have kind of acknowledge that hey female shepherd is almost like the canonical shepherd in many ways mm-hmm. versus the male shepherd i remember they there was that huge fight over having a female shepherd portrayed as one of the alternate covers in mass effect 3 for example so i'm glad that yeah. we're kind of at the point where we're able to maybe treat both characters as equal as opposed to like and also there's the girl version i don't know girl ship <laughs> I think the smartest thing they did, well, not the smartest thing, but definitely one of the smartest things they did in like marketing and and selling this legendary edition was that in all the covers and all the wallpaper makers and stuff like that, Shepard is always wearing the helmet. So it's like mm-hmm. just kind of this monolithic ideal of what Shepard is and not necessarily specifically dude Shep or, or, or Femme Shep. And also like the whole thing about everybody's Shep might look different because it's a character creator. You're going to make different choices and stuff like that. So just having, you know, the, the iconography of a shepherd on the cover arts, because that's there, it needs to exist. But what you really care about is all the characters around shepherd 
and that's what makes the games interesting and and then shep is just kind of the vehicle for your for you to experience those emotions and and hang out with those characters on the idea of shepherd being kind of monolithic uh they were inde- indeed intended to be kind of a blank slate. Uh, you cited Jack Bauer. They were definitely a Captain mm-hmm. Kirk or Jack Bauer figure. They were already established as a hero, but also somebody that you could kind of mold. And I've always been a little surprised at the number of directions that people have been able to take their different shepherds through uh, the trilogy, even if at the end of the day, in many ways, the the character's personality is roughly similar. Yeah, I think I'm playing a, a paragon male shepherd mm-hmm. apparently so i guess i made the right choice in a, in a roundabout way it, it it works for that and i think on, on top of that not just like paragon renegade but also just you know shepherd is about the decisions that you make at certain points in the story you know like we'll we'll talk about this later but like there are certain points in mass effect story where you have to make a big choice um and i think that ends up being the sort of thing that you end up forming your shepherd around is how you react in those in those moments and how you feel about different things you know like do you believe that humanity is superior to other alien races or not like that is an actual kind of like cornerstone that you can establish for your own shepherd about whether you are a human exceptionalist or not and <laughs> weirdly enough in mass effect one it like leans heavier into that than you would expect um but you can also be like a character who's like, nah, we all got to work together. We're one big galactic community. And and also that's get off my ship, Ashley. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out the airlock with you. I guess that's a good segue into the party members in Mass Effect. There is a large cast and I'd say that Mass Effect has a lot of iconic characters. They include Liara Tassoni, Garrus, Tally, Rex, Caden, and Ashley. Nobody cares about the human characters. It's all about the aliens in this game. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we also have our NPCs like Jokers played by Seth Green. Also, and maybe lesser known, Dr. Chocolas. And then there's Captain yeah. Anderson and, of course, Donald Udina, the racist ambassador. <laughs> oh, don't, right. Him. Don't forget Admiral Hackett, the weird voice that just calls you throughout Mass Effect when is like, yeah, we're going to need you to take care of some uh, some stuff that's happening in this galaxy over here. Uh, if you could not tell anyone about it, that'd be great. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I love like like Hackett is this disembodied voice of the fifth fleet for all of Mass Effect one. I think you don't even meet or see his face until Mass Effect 2. But every time he shows up, it's great because he's this really good gravelly voice over the radio that's just like, you know, we got some stuff going on and uh, we'll need you to keep this under the table, Shepard. Uh, can't have anyone finding out about this. Uh, good luck. Try not to blow anything up. <laughs> you make him sound like Vince McMahon. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Space Vince McMahon. Oh, no. <laughs> what have I created? Um yeah, I'd say most of the interesting human characters are the ones that aren't in your squad, like Dr. Chakwas owns. Um, yeah. She is fantastic. I like Joker a lot. I think he starts out as very much the comedic relief, and he stays that way for a while. There's there's a line he has in Mass Effect 2 that still cracks me up every time he delivers it, because it sounds like something that MCU would... There's a part where two of your uh, squad members, Jack and Miranda, are fighting... And Joker is just like on the comms. He's like, hey, uh, they're they're fighting in the in the crew lounge and you might want to get over there before somebody breaks a bulkhead. And <laughs> Shepard's like, oh, fine, I'll deal with it. And like right 
on the spot joker's like take pictures <laughs> every time i hear it i'm just like oh you know what like getting a celebrity for this i thought it would be weird having seth green in this role but it works so well. He's he's really, really good in the role. I and mean, I could see like Seth Green being really great at any role where the character is like in charge of navigating a ship and he's wearing a baseball cap. Yes. Yeah. And he has he has like avian bones or whatever. He has very like easily breakable bones and all that. Um, and he ends up by Mass Effect 3, like actually having a character arc and being part of the Normandy in a way that uh, hits a little, little home. So, yeah. He has a crush on an AI. Oh, he fell, he fell in love with the robot lady because she saved his life in Mass Effect 2. And then in Mass Effect 3, she gets a sexy robot body. And now he's just confused because he's in love <laughs> with an AI. And, and who amongst us? <laughs> exactly. There but for the grace of God. I remember when Mass Effect originally came out, it felt like most of the focus was on Liara. But with the Legendary Edition now out, I feel like everybody's talking about Tally. It's all about Tally these days. Yeah. Tally, Tally owns. Uh, I mean, Quarians in general are just, I think, one of the cooler races because they have so much interesting history. Like the idea of the migrant fleet, you know, this this group of ships that sails the galaxy because they were kicked off their home world by an AI force that they made and turned on them is like such a cool concept. And then just everything about like, oh, they have these Enviro suits they have to live in because they're uh, immune systems are so compromised and they're just a cool race with interesting culture and it all ties in together very well i'd say like rex is the other one that a lot of people are talking about but rex has always been one of the stars of mass effect one yeah definitely and our villain is Saren, who was originally conceived as a weaker more biotic focused character went through several iterations and is a rogue specter it's a little like golden eye maybe golden eye mm-hmm. 007 only yeah. if uh the main character, the main villain, we're working with a giant evil race of world civilization destroying robots. And I would say it's the best main villain in the series. If Mass Effect 2 suffers from anything, maybe it's that you're fighting kind of more of a faceless enemy in many ways. Maybe Cerberus is, maybe the elusive man is the actual enemy of Mass Effect 2, but it's a frenemy. Yeah, like the tension of Mass Effect 2 is, is different because you're fighting the collectors, but you're also kind of working around the fact that the elusive man is clearly not somebody that you want to be in a long-term partnership with and uh, is probably not working towards the good of everyone in the galaxy. And so you're also looking for ways to maybe make it so he doesn't get everything he always wants while still getting done what you need to get done. And it's, it's a more complex story in that way. But Saren, I think Saren is honestly like, the time in the in the trilogy where we get that real charismatic villain the one that you can point at and say like oh saren's coming in on his space hoverboard again he's gonna (laughs) shoot at god that space hoverboard kicks ass i love it um but it's every time he he rolls up and you have moments with him too that i think are maybe the best parts that you can kind of try and get through to him because as the story goes on you you know kind of learn about indoctrination and the fact that he's kind of being slowly brainwashed to do what sovereign wants him to do. And um, you can kind of try to break through to him and speak to him. And he has those moments of doubt that you can, you can get at him with. And having that kind of villain is just really, really good for mass effect. It reflects this idea of player choice and, you know, being a good paragon or a good renegade leading up to you being able to sway someone's heart with your charisma and all that. Um, It's good RPG stuff 
And so, yeah, Saren rules. I also really like Matriarch Venezia, um, even though she doesn't get as much screen time as as Saren does, but she ends up being an interesting secondary antagonist as well. And finally, there were two pieces of DLC that ultimately came out for Mass Effect. There was Bring Down the Sky, which is a, kind of a fleshed out, expanded side story in which terrorists commandeer an asteroid and try to crash it into a colony. And it was just, I think it was sort of in response to a lot of the complaints about the side story, the side quests in the original Mass Effect. And it incorporated a lot of the uh, kind of the lessons learned from the design of that game. Notably, it's a lot easier to drive the Mako around in that game, which is nice. And then Pinnacle Station, which is a very boring and bad uh, simulation piece of DLC that was lost to history because they lost the source code for it. Ouch. Hate it when that (laughs) happens. (laughs) You might not be surprised to learn that Mass Effect enjoyed excellent reviews when it came out. I believe it has a 91 on Metacritic right now. GameSpot said, It's surprising that so many small annoyances and glitches made their way into a game of such general high quality. Still, most players will be able to look past them and enjoy Mass Effect for what it is, a terrific role-playing game with great production values and fun, exciting action. Um, Edge said, after Jedi Knights and lightsabers, these soldiers and bullets just don't cut it. So Edge wasn't into it. Don't cut yourself on that, Edge. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. And it was, of course, falsely accused of having interactive sex scenes and full digital nudity by Fox News in not giving us the term sex box. <laughs> I forgot about sex box. How could I forget about sex box? And the worst part is if they ran that campaign these days, Mass Effect fans would be like, no, we're angry because it doesn't have that shit in yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't cater to my sickest fantasies. What's wrong? So, so vanilla. These days, I think Mass Effect 1 is kind of a hot topic among RPG fans, I feel. There are people, there are plenty of people, and they've been airing their voices with Legendary Edition saying that you should just skip Mass Effect 1, that it's the one that maybe is the one that's the least essential, the combat is a little wonky, It's uh, the series gets really, really good with Mass Effect 2, but then, of course, there are the people who hotly defend the original mass effect i have been in that camp in the past austin walker is another person and they tend to be the ones who are more drawn to its crunchier role-playing elements it's more fleshed out world it's exploration and that kind of thing because mass effect 2 and mass effect 3 put a much sharper focus on the actual action this is a debate that we've had many times on this show but i would say that debate in many ways has defined mass effect one's legacy yeah, one thing that kind of kept me from playing the game back in the day is everyone telling me, like, oh, forget Mass Effect 1. Oh, go ahead and download the comic. Oh, no, you got to play Mass Effect 1. So I, I got so confused, I just spaced out, so to speak, and didn't <laughs> play it in any regard. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand people that are like, skip Mass Effect 1, because, like, I understand... Here's the other thing. Mass Effect 1 is not that long of a game. I've I've done runs of it where it took me maybe five to eight hours to get through that game if you just mainline it. And it's I think it's such a good way to get like the foundation of what this series is. Cause there is if you start with Mass Effect 2, I think you miss a lot of like really good context information. You definitely don't have the stuff that's like 
oh hey it's rex oh i get to see rex again oh yeah mm-hmm. awesome like you don't get those moments and like while certain characters like garris like become who they are and become the character that they you know everyone loves them as in mass effect 2 i think you need that foundation of him being this like whiny like oh Pop. but i i want to light the orphanage on fire to kill the criminal <laughs> even if they'll kill all the orphans we can also get the criminal and you're like no garris bad <laughs> and, yeah. um like garris is just he, alien dirty harry there i said it a little, little bit and like i think you need that because he doesn't have an arc otherwise the same with the same goes with tally where tally is this character that starts out very unsure of herself Uh, She's off on a pilgrimage. You know, she can definitely kick some ass and take some names, but she's trying to figure out her place in the universe. And I think that really comes to a peak in Mass Effect 2 when certain revelations happen about her upbringing and stuff like that. Um, And you don't get that if you don't spend an entire game like hanging out with her, talking to her, learning about how she has lived life in the past, uh, why she cares so much about the flotilla and about quarrying culture and uh reclaiming ranok and all that and you don't get that if you don't play mass effect one you you gotta play mass effect one just eat your vegetables (laughs) (laughs) all right that is the making and legacy of mass effect now it is time to take a harder look at its best moments and decide whether or not it deserves to be in the pantheon don't go away Okay, it's time now to take a closer look at Mass Effect and decide whether or not it is worthy of inclusion of the RPG Pantheon. We'll start out with looking at the five best moments in Mass Effect 1. Number one, shortly after you go to Eden Prime and you start to learn about what the heck is going on, you see that the stakes are established, the villain is established. You head to the Citadel, which is this absolutely enormous space station which is where the kind of the seat of galactic government is it's where you meet the consul and everything and that is where the story begins in earnest you pick up a lot of your crewmates here i don't love the citadel but it is one of the iconic locations in mass effect and nadia and eric you were both really insistent on this uh on this being part of the best moments so i'm, I'm gonna leave it to you two to articulate why citadel owns it's so good what are you talking <laughs> about Kat? it's so good it's you okay you, you've gotten off eden prime all right you've experienced some bad stuff going down eden prime honestly is pretty good like i that that place is messed up there's like people being impaled on spikes and turned into techno zombies like there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening on eden prime and seeing sovereign the giant space squid like lift off and being like oh that's not good (laughs) and uh you get through all that and you're like okay we're going to the citadel this is the heart of galactic civilization and then you you run out to the windows to look out the windows it's this big giant almost kind of like a barrel Oddly enough, it reminds me of the engine of a pod racer the most. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it really does. Maybe because my brain is just broken. But <laughs> it, it lo- it's this giant barrel-shaped thing with all these cities and buildings uh, stretching down its arms. And 
you land and you know you have a little conversation with your you know crappy ambassador and all that but then you get to go just talk and it's every alien civilization all living together and they've all got their problems and they've all got their issues and you can just live in that there's the asari consort which is this weird side quest and you have like all these different like you can talk to aliens and they'll be like oh yeah shitty human of course you're in here just to stir up some trouble and stuff like that i'm like awesome i want to know why humanity sucks like it's just for (laughs) for the people who love the world building and the lore like this is it this is the the library of of alexandria here like you're just running in here and and there's just everything all around you and you just want to consume all of it and there's this weird vi that can pop up and tell you like this is a statue of the krogan you're like cool who are the krogan uh, they were a race that we lifted up because they're super good at battle and we used them to kill another alien race, but then they got too powerful. So we like inflicted a genocidal genophage onto them. So now only one in a thousand of them survives childbirth. And you're like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> that's nice. Why do we have a statue of them here? <laughs> that <laughs> <Yeah>. feels inappropriate. <laughs> and the VI is just like, I don't know. <laughs> and, yeah, I do like how the AI, like if you ask her, I can't remember her name, but if you ask her a difficult question, she's like, I'm sorry, I'm not really programmed to answer that. Mm-hmm. Avina. Avina, uh, that's it. Yeah, and and she just becomes like a great running gag because way later in a, a later moment we will have on here, she's all broken and busted up and she's just like, everything is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so many good just running gags in this, but that's the thing is the Citadel is like, the centerpiece of all this and that's why like i encourage people if they're playing for the first time to make sure to go back to the citadel and do side quests and stuff like that because it is like the focal point of the universe and uh if you just go to the other planets and go to other places you won't really get that but it is like this gathering place where all this stuff happens you get to experience all these different cultures living together and the problems that ensue and so i love I love the Citadel. I, I think it's such a cool place. I just want to vibe there all the time. The Citadel is a hugely important location in the original Mass Effect. I think he said it's it's not just a focal point of civilization. It's a focal point of the story. The story is more or less bookended by journeys mm-hmm. to the Citadel. Yes, you start at Eden Prime, but the story doesn't truly begin in earnest until you go to the Citadel. On the flip side, these the pacing of the story in some ways slows to a crawl because you have to do all of the heavy lifting of, okay, we have to get all the party members together who all just happen to have some kind of connection to Saris. And, oh, look, that's great. So we got Tally and Rex and Garrus all together. Hooray. Now we have a party. It's very D&D in that regard. Extremely. That's why I liked it because (laughs) it was so RPG. The fact that you're in this kind of giant city state which would be in a regular rpg and this is where you buy things this is where you talk to people this is where you get expedition about the races and the stories and that side quests it's very it's a whole point like the, that's where rpg central is for mass effect for me it's also where you have to learn a lot of the exposition about humanity and their role in the universe and everything and i think i also compared it a little bit to final fantasy 5 when you just show up in the meteor site and it's like oh look here's our party members just all kind of around it's a little bit like that in the original Mass Effect. It's also where you get introduced to the elevators, which were quite yes. infamous <laughs> in the original oh. uh, Mass Effect, but are much better now and are easier to appreciate the really sharp writing around the conversations between party members and the, the various advertisements and news bulletins telling you about what's happening in the world. The elevator rides do so much to add to the 
the sense that the universe is a real place in the original. And there's elevator music. <laughs> Unless I misheard. Did I mishear? Is there elevator music? I, I thought I heard it. In one of them, I know there's elevator music, but I don't know if it's Mass Effect 1 or if because I think there's I, I in Mass Effect 3, there's an elevator too. So it just goes da, 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 as you're there riding. might be something like playing faintly in the background that I've just like tuned yeah. out of my brain because I've ridden the elevator so many times that I don't even <laughs> notice them. Well, anymore. listen for it next time that you play, just to, yeah, you know, not crazy, yeah. The original Mass Effect, I don't know how people were able to stand those elevators because it was like a 45-second loading screen, basically. Wow, that bad, eh? Oh, it was really bad. It's you never been on a long elevator ride? Ugh, nowadays they go so fast, it makes me, gives me nightmares, tragically. Ever been in a hotel where it's like really tall and they put you on a really supersonic elevator? It's, it's really freaky. I think it's, yeah, but it's fun. I think that's cool. <laughs> yeah, you're getting launched upwards. It's, it owns, it's Brad. <laughs> <laughs> it owns <laughs> we're gonna die it owns yeah <laughs> one thing i like about the citadel in the original mass effect versus mass effect 2 and 3 is how much more expansive it is in the original game i think because it's not the focal point in mass effect 2 and mass effect 3 it seems much smaller in the uh, subsequent games and i think that what they do to the citadel and the the following games is really kind of emblematic in some ways of the reduced focus on maybe world building and the greater focus on action and keep the story moving forward. So if in some ways the Citadel embodies both the strengths and the weaknesses of Mass Effect, the strengths of this sense of like scope and ambition and a real sense of place and the weakness being that like this game can really meander at times. Mm, I did find it a little bit, you're right. I did find it a bit meandering in the Citadel uh, not always in a terrible way, but it is a big place and the fast travel helps, but I could see going absolutely out of my mind if I still had all the load times there. Oh, I scanned all the keepers in this one because I was like, oh, it's so yeah, much easier to do. Yeah, I have the scanning keepers. It's that's so much another, easier to uh, do now. Yeah, that's another little bit of a, a star control shout out was the, uh, the precursors left behind, the little aliens that like took care of things. Nobody could really control them, knew what they were, but they, little robots that would kind of assist and, uh, keep things together i think um the citadel also ends up reflecting like the tone of each game so in, in mass effect one you mainly spend time in the presidium you know like the big garden areas and the fancy place where you see the statues and all that and the big waterfalls and it's like oh this is the the pinnacle of civilization here and mass effect two you spend most of your time in like the zakara wards which are like part of the the I'd say like the urban, like the city parts of the Citadel where there's just rampant crime and they talk about like kids living in the air ducts and stuff like that. Um, and uh, you you have, you see kind of the not presidium side of the Citadel where like, what does it mean to live in the wards and, and to live in the city parts where crime is happening all the time? Um, and then in Mass Effect 3, I think you really just kind of bounce between areas and most of the stuff you're doing is like you're dealing with, I, I remember there's one area that's like an immigration area that's dealing with all the refugees from the war and then the hospital and there's a few other locations, but you're really kind of just using a menu to get to them. And that kind of highlights that like Mass Effect 3 is very much like we need to get you to the place you need to get to because we're trying to tie off a million different knots in one game. Yeah, it does end up reflecting 
the tone of each game every time you know the way each citadel is constructed and at least with the citadel dlc and three they ended up kind of rectifying that and building out the idea of the citadel more into like honestly the coolest hub in all three games combined is in the citadel dlc but uh yeah it's it's a lot it's also just a really really big place like the the amount of space the real estate that you're seeing throughout the course of the Mass Effect games is barely even part of it. It's so huge. Yeah. For me, the game really truly gets started when you undock from the Citadel for the first time as the new captain of the Normandy, a full-blown specter, and head out into the galaxy ready to go on your adventures. And you're like, okay, let's get started. I think a lot of people struggle with Mass Effect 1 because, uh, and I was tweeting about this, because Eden Prime and the Citadel are kind of wonky, slow-paced, uh, slightly boring areas, whereas Mass Effect 2 just like starts out with a bang and just never really stops, I think. So it's a lot easier to kind of get into. And part of me is like, I appreciate the stately nature, I suppose, of Mass Effect's pacing. It's almost like Alien versus Aliens, I want to say. But Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I can also understand why people are like, oh, the pacing in this game. Oh, my God. And I think the Citadel embodies that. All right. Number two. So once you depart the Citadel, you can go on a number of different quests. This was the kind of the Bioware method, you want to say, where you have like three major quests where you can that you can tackle in any order. And as you complete them, eventually everything comes back together. And one of them takes place on a planet called Novaria. And you eventually discover uh, these this alien species called the Rachni. And the Rachni, where <laughs> there were a lot of wars in the Mass Effect universe, as it turns out. And uh, the Rachni are just one of many aliens that tried to overrun civilization and were almost driven to extinction. And so you have an interesting choice here. Do you allow the Rachni to live knowing that they might re, uh, repopulate and then try to destroy civilization again? Or do you finish them off once and for all? And this is where I reveal that I am an utter monster in my original playthrough <gasps> of the original Mass Effect. I killed the Rachni queen. Cat, cat, cat. I'm both shamed and I totally see you making that choice too. <laughs> 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 it's like, yeah, that sounds about Patented right. Cat choice. <laughs> Like, can't leave this loose end. <laughs> can't leave this loose end hanging. Better sniff that. Yeah. <laughs> like, Matriarch Venezia is still bleeding out in the corner. You're like, don't worry, I'll take care of that in a moment, but we're going to get rid of this Rachni queen first. Make your peace with the galaxy. The Rachni are a dead race. Is our kind so frightening? You would seek our silence if you cannot muffle our songs? If you cannot have us as your obedient claws. This time, stay dead. We will not embrace the great silence. Yeah, like all of Novaria is so spectacular. I think it's my favorite part of those those three missions. Uh, and you go through, I, I think the, the part that leads up to it helps make it so much more interesting too because the planet that you're on, Novaria, is basically like a haven for corporations to do all their sketchy testing and and lab work that they don't want any oversight on so they build these giant labs into the mountains and the the people that run Novaria basically like they protect 
they protect them from outside influence. So they literally have cannons pointed at the Normandy as the Normandy's coming in. They're like, hey, you're not approved to land here. You better tell us why or we're going to shoot you out of the sky right now. And when you touch down, you find out that like, okay, the lab you're trying to get to that has Matriarch, Venezia, Saren's second in command in it. Uh, is on lockdown right now and they're like yeah something's going out there if they don't tell us what it is soon we're probably just going to wipe it off the face of the planet using a satellite because we'd rather th- just destroy any evidence of wrongdoing here so that other companies can keep doing their messed up stuff and paying us a bunch of money to get it done it's like so i i love that setup and then you get into the labs and you find out like oh what messed up stuff could they possibly have been doing oh they were reviving the race of kind of a mix of the zerg from starcraft and the buggers from ender's game where it's like this alien hive mind race that is very like insect like but also just has all kinds of scary claws and teeth and stuff (laughs) like that um and and they're like oh they were trying to bring them back to life but cut off the connection to the hive mind and controlled the soldiers as their own that's not good that's real bad they they should maybe blow this thing off the face of the planet <laughs> um but then the rachni end up being really cool like i was mentioning it before the podcast started but the part where the queen kind of like latches a sucker onto the window and it's like supposed to be there are a couple points in this game where they try to do jump scares but it's in a way where they didn't really have like the cutscene technology to really do jump scares at the time so it's just mm-hmm. like oh scary <laughs> <laughs> um but the scary part is that one of the Asari commandos who you had killed earlier, like kind of rises up from the dead and is being controlled by the Rachni queen and starts like speaking for her and saying like the songs of us will carry on. We do not, you know, we didn't want to try and wipe out people in the past. And they have like, it's such a weird creepy moment, but it's so good because you're like, Oh, maybe the Rachni aren't so bad. Maybe they're just misunderstood, but also I'm feeling this way while they're controlling a dead body to speak to me. So I'm really conflicted right now. <laughs> Sounds like that scene in Independence Day with the scientist. And the yeah. Alien. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except not quite as nice, I guess. Yeah. It's, uh, it's cool. And I mean, this is like one of the decisions that people point to as being like, oh, it didn't pan out across the trilogy because of what happens in Mass Effect 3. But um, I still think it stands out as just a moment where like bioware is really saying like how do you feel about this and they present you with a thing that has some pretty reasonable like reasons for either side once you get later in the series i think you have stuff where it's like hey do you want to cure the genophage or do you want to be a monster (laughs) (laughs) um, but but the rachni thing always struck me as even when in your gut you know the right decision is to let the queen go and hope that nothing happens it can still leave off on that note of like do I fully know what I've just done? And am I, am I okay with the potential consequences and ramifications of what I've just done? If it doesn't go the way I think it's going to go. And I think that's good. That's good. It's good writing. Dreaming of a better sleep. Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I killed the Rachni because I was role-playing a renegade. So I was like, I'm going to pick every evil decision in this game. But at a certain point, I became invested in my shepherd and I started going more Paragon. And in my headcanon, that was a turning point for my character because they felt such immense, they were racked with such immense guilt over destroying a species that they began to change. Now that they still sacrificed the console at the end of the game because they are still supportive of the human agenda, I want to say, but by agenda. Mass Effect, but that, but the decision to kill the Rachni always stuck with my character. And so by Mass Effect 2, they start to turn a lot. And Mass Effect 2 is where like the big turning point for them, where they become not giant racist jerks. So I'm as, sorry, I was wrong. That's the story of Ender's game. <laughs> that's, say, he wiped out the alien game. race and felt guilt about it. That's the story of but Ender's I feel, game. I killed them all, but I felt real bad about it. Oh well. I'm sorry. Ender's game is written by a Hatsune Miku. And nobody else, no one else wrote that. <laughs> As for setting the Rachni free, I always think of the quote from The Simpsons, freedom, horrible, horrible freedom. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the Rachni were a key moment in Mass Effect because they were always intending this to be a trilogy, as we already know. And this was a story hook because the assumption was, oh, you, just, you get to recruit the Rachni and use them against the Reapers. And actually, that wasn't the case at all in Mass Effect 3. It was kind of a... Oh, mm, they do wrap it up. They do wrap up the story, but it wraps up in maybe a way that you're not expecting. Yeah, that was kind of the the bummer of it was that the way they end up resolving it was not super great and didn't feel like a good resolution and i think it's really hard to try and like explain in any way why it makes sense it's just kind of a bummer even though it does give grunt like one of the best moments of the trilogy where he just busts out of the ground he's like i lived <laughs> <laughs> oh i love bitch. grunt he's so good uh but grunt, yeah it's... or as we call him laurent rex <laughs> <laughs> he's so good though he's oh he grows into his own i love him but he's he's like Rex is like my my drinking buddy. Like I go out on the town with Rex. The grunt is like my little angry son that I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, stop getting up to hijinks, grunt. You're better than this. <laughs> like, oh. But also I love you and your rambunctious self. Moment number three. After you've completed two of the major quests, you head out to a planet called Vermeer, and that is where shit starts to get real. And you potentially lose at least two crew members. One of them you have to lose, but also they're the two least interesting characters in the game, question mark. But there's a lot happening in this particular segment. And this is where, in my opinion, the story kicks into high gear. Because one of the things about Mass Effect is the first half is just okay. The second half, I think, is what really pushes it potentially into candidate for Pantheon territory. So, And I think it all begins on Vermeer. What do you think, Eric? 
Yeah. Um, the thing that I ended up really liking about Vermeer, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but the way that they kind of propose different missions to you when you set off from the Citadel is like very unassuming. They're like, okay, well, you know, we've heard some stuff's going down on Pharos and some stuff's going down on Ovaria, so you should probably check that out. And also like Benezia's got a daughter. You should probably go find out what's up with her. And those are your three missions. And when you hear about Vermeer, it's kind of the same way where they're like, oh, we had some Salarian scouts out in the, in the Traverse uh, and they were keeping tabs on some movements of Saren's forces out there and they've gone off the grid. So, you know, if you, if you think that's a good lead, go check it out. And when you land, you're like, Oh, communications are jammed. They can't get any messages out. Uh, you just knew that they were calling for help. And when you finally get to the team, they're like, where's the fleet? <laughs> Cause they were like, we were calling for a fleet. No, Saren's here. And not only is he here, he's trying to cure the genophage and create an army of Krogan that he's going to run across the universe with. We need a fleet here. We need to glass this planet. <laughs> and and you're just kind of like, I'm it. <laughs> like This yeah. is all we've got. And uh, it turns into this, like, you know, I know the suicide mission from Mass Effect 2 is, is very famous. And it was because it was built up to be like that. But um, this is also kind of a little mini suicide mission because going into it, like everyone kind of knows that you're going into insurmountable odds to prevent Saren creating this army that would be unstoppable. And you have a face off with Rex where Rex is obviously like, I'm Krogan. I want the genophage cured. Why shouldn't we help Saren? Why would I not want to be a part of that? And he pulls a gun on you. And if you can't talk him down, uh, Ashley, the space racist shoots him because <laughs> she's like, I didn't like the way he was looking at you. And you're like, God, Ashley, you're such a space racist. I'm leaving you here on Vermeer because that also happens. You have to lose a human squad mate on Vermeer because you split up into multiple teams and one gets pinned down by fire in one area and the other one is trying to defend this like nuclear bomb that you're trying to set off on the plant to destroy it. And so you have to go pick one to save and the other one will die. And like it's it escalates so fast and gets so real so fast and this is the moment where i think mass effect becomes what people remember it being which is this okay now you have these characters you care about and they can die <laughs> and you have to make decisions about this and you have to like you know reckon with the stakes of what you're doing here you've kind of been going through these star trek adventures we're going to wacky planets and seeing all kinds of wacky stuff going on look at this rack i'm gonna set it on fire because my Blue name's chips. cat bailey <laughs> 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 but um it's so, <laughs> um but then then later <laughs> uh now it's like you've got stakes you've got to like deal with stuff and and it's really it ramps up so much i mean that's there's another moment on here that takes place on vermeyer that that really like emphasizes that but yeah this is this is the part of the game where it gets real and you have to be like oh this is what we're dealing with right now making sure this bomb goes off no matter what it's done commander go get the lieutenant and get the hell out of here belay that we can handle ourselves. Go back and get Williams. Alenko, radio Joker and tell him to meet us on the AA Tower. Yes, Commander. I... I... You know it's the right choice, LT. Stay alive. I'll be coming to get you too, Ash. I think we both know that's not gonna happen, Commander. I also think that Vermeer, sort of like the Citadel, is reflective of the weaknesses of the original Mass Effect. 
which is the Kate and Ash, uh, the Kate and Ashley choice is just not a good choice because you don't care about those are the two least interesting characters. They just yeah. they are not my party. They, <laughs> they were just gone. <laughs> they utterly failed to make Caden or Ashley likable or compelling in any way, shape, or form. And you know that Bioware was trying to make these characters people that you cared about. I mean, they're you know romanceable and that kind of thing. And so when it comes to the choice, it's just like I, I don't know. I'm going to shoot Ashley into space. I guess I don't like her. <laughs> <laughs> Out the airlock with you. Yeah, I think it's just it becomes a harder thing because you have to make the choice. And normally, I think, yeah, I'm thinking through the series. And in most situations, people die as a ramification of your choices. But you don't outright say, like, you're the one that gets to live, you know, and you have to actually do that. You get on the radio and you say, I'm coming to save you, Lieutenant Alenko or whatever. Like You basically have to tell one of them that, like, yeah, I'm leaving you to die. And that's the part that sticks out to me every time is even as I was doing this and I was like, yep, Ashley, you're going to stay with the bomb. And uh, you know what that means. Best of luck with that. See you on the other side. <laughs> RIP. <laughs> um, but we even nuked as I was Ashley. Doing that, Yay. Yay. <laughs> even as I was doing it, even as I was blasting that space racist off the planet, um, I was like, oh man, it does kind of suck that you have to be like, sorry, Ashley, you, you got to stay behind. You're a good soldier. Cause commander shepherd is definitely like that you're a good soldier did your duty hurrah and stuff like that it's like uh but um, very armageddon yeah but at the same Sorry time you're just like oh man yeah <laughs> shout outs to bruce willis <laughs> f and chat i would i would save bruce willis every time <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah it's it, it's a lot and it is the moment where the story is basically basically saying like yeah we're we're upping the stakes now this is not just a space adventure space odyssey anymore like there are going to be things that happen that you are going to have to live with and you you live with that choice the whole series like they remind you of it and two they're like when you come back to life and they're sitting there testing your memory and they're like okay here are all your accomplishments and stuff like that but also remember the time that you left someone to die which one did you leave to die <laughs> <laughs> please remind us yeah <laughs> Can you just ask me who the president is right now? No, no, you, you got to tell us. Who no, no. There was a time when you had to choose someone to die. We want you to remember it. So, so you know, you have your memory. Uh. When the Normandy leaves, there's that really cool shot of it flying off into space mm -hmm. as this gigantic mushroom cloud is rising on Vermeer. And actually, one of the things I really love about Mass Effect are all of the really dope flybys uh, of the Normandy looking awesome. Mm. <laughs> so... Normandy it is cool sick. Ship. It's a cool ship. And the Normandy no is one now. of the it's just a phenomenal spaceship design, I have to say. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. and it's it has a real sense of place, I think. And it's not something that we've really discussed to this point, but you the feeling of being able to there's a very clear layout of the Normandy. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've noticed in RPGs over the years is that you'll go into these hub areas and they can be really hard to navigate. I think that's a problem that massive, uh, sorry, Monster Hunter has is that there's mm -hmm. just too many icons, too many things to go around and it takes, and it feels really disorienting. Whereas in Normandy, you just instantly like kind of have a grasp of where everything is, right? And it's a fun ship to explore and you become really attached to it to the extent that when Mass Effect 2 starts up and stuff happens to the Normandy, you're like, oh my God, my ship, what the hell, <laughs> you know? 
It's interesting that they managed to convey a sense of ownership over the Normandy, given that you don't actually ever fly it. You only ever are picking things from the menu. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. One is, as I already mentioned, it's a very fleshed out environment for you to explore. And another is, and this is one of my favorite things about the original Mass Effect, is that you're actually walking out of the airlock onto a planet as opposed to going through loading screens a lot of the time. Yeah. Like once you get to two and three, they came up with that weird way of like you kind of pseudo fly it around. But I always thought that was like really strange and felt weird, especially in Mass Effect 3, the the weird thing they do with that. But um, yeah, in Mass Effect 1, just the fact like by the time I got to two uh, in the Legendary Edition, I was missing that feeling of like, oh, I get to walk out of the Normandy and go down the elevator and get into the Citadel. And instead it's like, oh, I I have landed. And then when I want to go back, I just go to the taxi and say, take me to the Normandy. And then I'm just back on the ship right away. Like Taxi. Yeah, taxi, take me to the Normandy. <laughs> Moment number four. Eventually you meet your foe, the Sovereign. And you initially think Sovereign is like a big old spaceship, right? That uh, Mm -hmm. Saren managed to find. But no, the Reaper is a spaceship. That is a Reaper right there. Mm -hmm. And the Reaper starts talking to you. And the Reaper's like, I am God. And you are a tiny insect. And I don't even know what you're you're doing here. But I'm going to make humanity go squish. And I do. uh, It's a very creepy sequence honestly when the the reaper is talking to you but i also love that if you have garris with you he's like is this a vdi and then it's like i will destroy all of humanity he's like oh it's not a vdi okay (laughs) so (laughs) i mean i'm really underselling it this is a great moment let's listen to it really quickly you are not saren what is that some kind of vi interface rudimentary creatures of blood and flesh You touch my mind, fumbling in ignorance, incapable of understanding. I don't think this is a VI. There is a realm of existence so far beyond your own, you cannot even imagine it. I am beyond your comprehension. I am Sovereign. Sovereign isn't just some Reaper ship Saren found. It's an actual Reaper. Reaper? Created by the Protheans to give voice to their destruction. In the end, what they chose to call us is irrelevant. We simply are. I think that it's at this moment that the Reapers are solidified as a like an, a real threat, and this is where Mass Effect becomes uh, a true space epic that extends beyond the bounds of the original story and make the Reapers a uh, truly terrifying foe, uh, kind of like, you know, in the the realm of, say, the Borg. Um, it reminds mm-hmm. me actually a little bit of when Picard is talking to the Borg in uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and you just hear this huge disembodied voice that is speaking with many voices talking to you and saying resistance is futile you can't do anything to us. We're coming for you. And you're like, oh, yeah, and they're probably serious. But uh, I just <laughs> I had to I had to put it in here because I remember this being like a huge moment for me when I was really locked into Mass Effect at this moment when I met the Sovereign. Uh, what, do, what do you think, Eric? I think it's an incredible moment for like two reasons, because 
it, one, yeah, it sets up this this enemy that like, you know, you'd been dealing with Saren the whole time. And I think it's easy to have your suspicions that Sovereign might be a Reaper, but to not just have confirmation, but to be speaking to it and like shout outs to the the voice acting work that was done here. I mean, the the line that I think a lot of people remember, which is like, you exist because we allow it and you end because we demand it is like, oh, that's that's a great moment. But it's also the revelation that the reason why the mass relays in the Citadel exist, because if you go diving into some of the extra conversations in the lore up to this point, you can kind of start to surmise that like, hey, so no one actually built the Citadel. They just kind of found it and were living on it. And everyone kind of assumed it was Prothean. Same with the mass relay technology. And they were just like, oh, yeah, we just found it and it worked. And there were a bunch of keepers hanging out on it. We tried to figure out what was going on, but they just kind of ignored us. But we were like, hey, cool, free house. Let's hang out here. <laughs> and that's that's how galactic civilization forms. And the revelation that that stuff exists because it's basically like the most efficient tool for the Reapers to zoom in every, I think it's 50,000 years and harvest organic life and leave again because it ensures that all organic like intelligent organic life in this galaxy will evolve along those set paths because they basically lay them out it's like they put down a highway and said like oh look here's a highway and every like smart civilization you know smart in quotes <laughs> is like mm-hmm. hey cool let's use this highway and then all of a sudden the reapers show up or like cool they're all like on different exits of the highway so it's really easy for us to harvest them and then bounce back out and wait for the next you know group of organic life to show up and that's like haunting (laughs) that's like the idea that everything you have taken for granted was built to ensure that your destruction will not just be insured but efficient and like that's oh it it's good i like it a lot it's a great reveal and mm-hmm. I think that because it, I mean, the game is literally called Mass Effect. It's based on the mass relays. Uh, the Citadel is established from the very beginning as this, you know, hub of galactic civilization. So it's there, top of mind, right from the very beginning. And it makes total sense, you know, that the Reapers would come in and they would just turn off the mass relays and cut everybody off from one another and then just pick each race off one at a time and when you think about it you're like oh no that's messed up jeez dang Mm -hmm. um and it really brings the story full circle in many ways and i think that um as reveals as reveals go like it's not some kind of ham-fisted twist or whatever it just it brings the entire story together in a way that i really appreciate and really speaks to the strength of both mass effect storytelling and its world building and finally, number five, the final battle around Citadel, which we were, I, I think we were talking about this on the round table, Eric, but mm-hmm. I, I love this entire sequence. If you skip Mass Effect, it's a real bummer that you're like missing out being on the outside in zero gravity, watching aliens flying away in that kind of hilarious ragdoll way that was very common <laughs> circa yeah. 2007. <laughs> Um, everybody, of course, talks about the uh, Saren shooting himself in the head if you have a sufficient mm-hmm. amount of charm, though the, I don't think that sequence is handled particularly well. And then, of course, there's a huge decision 
over whether or not you're going to spare the console and give them assistance as a huge space battle's happening outside of the Citadel. It's actually one of my entire favorite uh, whole sequences in the entire trilogy and just a terrific capper to the original game that really made me want to keep playing Mass Effect 2. Yeah, it's so cool when you're running up. I mean, like the whole bit from like Ilos and I'm now kicking myself because another one of the moments we should have had on here is when you're talking to the Prothean VI on Ilos and he's revealing to you that there was like a, a stash of Prothean scientists that basically worked like they hid away from the Reapers for years. And then when they came back to, they basically worked on a way to turn off the Citadel because the Citadel is a giant mass relay that's going to warp in all the Reapers and start the harvest and they found a way to create like a bit of code that if you can install it on the Citadel, it'll stop it from letting that get warped in. And so you're like racing against Sovereign to to get to that and and stop Sovereign from activating the giant mass relay and bringing in all the Reapers. But um, as you're like, you know, you're you're sprinting through with the Mako and then you get on the, the Citadel and you're running up the side of the Citadel in zero G. And just overhead, you see Sovereign, like the ship, and it's just massive and it's destroying everything. And like, I think it's the moment where you gain this appreciation for what you're fighting. Like this is, it's taking all the fleets that you have to deal with one Reaper <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's trying to warp in a bunch of them. And it's it, it's just such a cool moment. And I, I save the council and here's how I justify it. I don't care about the council. They're replaceable as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, we lose them. We just get a few more. But the ship they're on is badass. And I want to mm-hmm. save that ship because it looks cool. It's the Destiny Ascension. It's, I think, one of the few Asari uh, dreadnoughts you see in the game. It's basically this giant, like, star almost it looks like a giant plus sign and i don't understand how it works but it looks so cool and i just want i want to keep that thing running because it's a kick-ass ship and so the council lucked out that they were on it like i don't care who's on it i'll say uh, ashley can be back on that ship and i'll be like okay whatever we'll save ashley whatever just this come one. along for the ride <laughs> yeah um but yeah it's this big end cap to everything you've done up to that point and yeah the final standoff with Saren is a bit weird i i like that you have the ability to sort of charm or intimidate him out of the first phase of the boss fight um the shooting himself in the head thing is definitely like it in charm it's more like you convince him that he has been indoctrinated and you know like has lost himself to sovereign and then he makes that decision i don't remember if the intimidate is a little bit more aggressive or not but um <laughs> do it you coward yeah it kind of but so that maybe hasn't aged so well but it is cool to that the game respects people who have built up charisma to that point as their weapon to be like okay you have a way of doing this it's kind of like how you know in 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 fallout games you can have like a certain level of science or something like that and you can use that to solve a problem that you normally might have had to shoot your way out of so Mm -hmm. um it's it's a cool recognition of that The Reapers can't be stopped, not by the Protheans, not by you. The cycle always continues. Sovereign hasn't won yet. I can stop it from taking control of the station. Step aside and the invasion will never happen. We can't stop it, not forever. You saw the visions. You saw what happened to the Protheans. The Reapers are too powerful. Some part of you must still realize this is wrong. 
You can fight this! Maybe you're right. Maybe there is still a chance for... for... The implants. Sovereign is too strong. I'm sorry. It is too late for me. There's still one way to stop this. If you've got the guts. Goodbye, Shepard. Thank you. Feels like a, a callback to Fallout is what it yeah. feels like, and I think a lot of people appreciate it because it's a real RPG sort of moment where you can actually get out of a an encounter using your charisma and everything. I don't think it quite rings true because the way that the actual dialogue is written kind of carries off as Saren's basically we can't beat the Reapers. Yes, you can, but no, I no you can't. Yes, you can. Oh yeah, you're right. We we can. Well, anyway, I screwed up. I'm going to shoot myself in the head now. <laughs> and that's mm -hmm. that. <laughs> yeah. I will say that Saren looks... Husk Saren looks very creepy. And uh, how he's, he's like slowly but surely being taken over by the Reapers. Uh, that's like a really good design. Um, mm -hmm. Moving away from the very charismatic villain uh, that you see at the beginning of the game to the, the much more brainwashed, uh, withering away character that mm -hmm. you see at the end. Yeah, every time you run into him, he has like more just bits of tech and stuff like that. I think he has a line uh, on the Citadel where if you kind of like tried to appeal to him on Vermeer, he's like sovereign sensed my weakness and gave me more strength and instilled more confidence in me. I'm like, he he put more stuff in you, man. Like you fell asleep <laughs> one night and you woke up in a tub full of ice and it was different. <laughs> I just appreciate uh, it's not easy to do a really high quality finale. I think so many mm -hmm. AAA video games really fall flat actually when they hit their conclusion. And that goes for a lot of RPGs as well. And in Mass Effect, the battle around the Citadel, like I said, brings everything full circle. And it's when the story hits a, a real crescendo. And everybody calls out the the suicide mission in Mass Effect 2 as the highlight of the series. And in many ways, they're probably right. Like, the suicide mission's just freaking incredible. But I think the battle around the Citadel definitely deserves merit as a, an incredible moment in the series. I, I love it. I love it a lot. Okay, it is time now to lay out the case for and against Mass Effect being in the Pantheon. So before we get started with this conversation, I want to kind of preface this um, and address a conversation that we were having in the Discord. So I think there's some discussion about like, what is the Pantheon like? How does a game get into it? Because we've had a number of games go into the Pantheon and people are like, does it deserve to be in there? Like System Shock 2 and Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, there were some salts that Lufia II did not get in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to say about the Pantheon. 
What I will say about the Pantheon is that as far as I'm concerned, there are three major kind of criteria that an RPG that goes into the Pantheon should be able to meet. Criteria number one, does it hold up? Is it still a great, as great an, a game as it when it originally came out? Number two, is it significant in some way? Can we say, can we point to this game and say, this game, this RPG is historically significant in some, uh, some interesting way that people are still going to be able to talk about it? And finally, does it do one thing better than any other RPG? Is it like marked by greatness? Okay. So when I look at Mass Effect, I will say that, yeah, it is definitely marked by greatness. It is, has incredible world building. It has amazing characters, a great cast and everything. It's just a super memorable freaking game. And when I started playing it again on Legendary Edition, I was just like, wow, like I am totally invested in this world. And I was that's not an easy thing to do and a lot of games really fail at it so hats off to bioware for being able to create this just incredibly uh memorable and interesting world about it um i would also say that mass effect is significant it is like the ur example of the the sci-fi rpg the star trek rpg somebody in the discord was saying this is the star trek rpg and there aren't <laughs> a lot of rpgs like it and the fact that they were able to carry off this trilogy and the original mass effect laid the groundwork for this trilogy is does make it extremely significant and uh it really was also a turning point for bioware in many ways but the question i think and maybe the the discussion that we should be having over whether it should be in the pantheon is does it hold up i don't know guys yeah. because as much as i've been enjoying replaying it I do understand why a lot of people are like, I don't know. I can't hang with this game. It's very much a product of its time. I want to like move right on to Mass Effect 2. I'm really struggling with the pacing issues in this game. And it's sort of similar to uh, Final Fantasy VIII in that regard, where you can, mm -hmm. like, you can make a legitimate question of like, does this game hold up? I don't know. So, uh, guys, does Mass Effect 1 hold up? See, it's hard for me to say because I didn't really play the original, but um, playing Legendary Edition now, it's kind of like, well, I really, really love the world building. I love the alien races. I think the writing's fantastic. Combat, I am not really enjoying a whole bunch. And part of that is because I find the menu's a little bit convoluted. I find the map, like, painful to yeah. really navigate. I kind of get around the Citadel more on instinct than by actual, like, mapping. So... I have not played Mass Effect 2 or 3, so I can't even say, well, okay, maybe pass this one up and we'll put Mass Effect 2 in there instead. Uh, but it is really hard because, again, I really appreciate those more... I don't I don't really play RPGs for the combat. I play them for the story and the characters and, and the settings, and that's everything Mass Effect does really, really well. Just the combat is kind of like, okay, now it's time to do the funny dance with Shepard. Oh, someone popped up right in front of me. Let's shoot him in the head. Yay! <laughs> so that's what, that's where I am on this. Yeah, I'd say that like you made good cases for the other two points. It's almost to the level that I'd say what Mass Effect does that no other RPG does even extends beyond it to like encompass the whole trilogy and that no game series has really achieved this level of carryover with a character and the decisions and choices that you've made. Like Telltale is the closest mm -hmm. that's come to it. And um obviously barring dragon age but even dragon age doesn't get to this level of stuff in my opinion um and it's it's really notable for that um and i would say like 
especially now that we have the legendary edition, there's more of an argument to say that it's aged at least better now that it's been tuned up a little bit, but there are still aspects of it that for whatever reason, like you can't fix that stuff because it might break everything else in the video game. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, and there's just pieces of it that are definitely aged. They're definitely dated. I don't outright hate the idea of some of the combat. Like, I kind of dig having the heat bar instead of the thermal clips because it just makes it not feel like most other shooters. Like once you get to Mass Effect 2 and 3, having the thermal clips is nice, but at the same time, now it just feels like what a good gun feels like. Whereas in Mass Effect 1, it was this interesting thing of, oh, this is how guns work in this universe and you're not dealing with ammo, you're dealing with heat and that's kind of novel and interesting mm-hmm. um kind of interesting i feel like mass effect one is a game that's about like what if things weren't perfect but they were interesting like that's how i describe <laughs> the mako yeah. like that's how i describe the guns and the combat it's like what if instead of making what what is like polished and perfect we made something that was not like anything else that was around at the time and i think mass effect one succeeds in that regard and it's also why it doesn't age so well because you get to see every game that came after it and perfected and, yeah. and refined it in some way. Um, and, and they ditch some of these concepts, which it's kind of a bummer that some of them get left by the wayside and at least, you know, get retooled later on. Like you have the nomad and Andromeda and all that, but um, yeah, it's really hard specifically combat wise to not say that, or or to say that mass effect has aged well because like that specific area of it i'd even say like everything else about it is is fine just moving around the world is fine the the map is a frustration but i don't think it's an overall ding against it because i think the idea that you eventually just get to know the layout of the citadel and where things are by just Mm -hmm. looking around and not by staring at a map can be a good thing so cat you have won that battle (laughs) congratulations like all while i was playing mass effect 2 i would like hit the right stick to get the little ping to go somewhere and i'd hear your voice in my head like but what if it didn't do that what if that's a bad thing and i was like no no devil cat (laughs) get out of my head cat yeah yeah so um yeah, there. I mean, the map could be a lot cleaner and a lot more like visually better. But also, I do like the idea that you get to know the places that you're in just by being in them. Mm-hmm. And oh, man, this is tough. You know, it's like telling your kid that they made a bad drawing and why it's not going on the fridge. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Timmy, this is good, but you know, your technique is is rote. It's it's uninspired. <laughs> I just tried to draw an owl, Dad. Um <laughs> Light an owl. Uh, so I don't I don't know. Why don't you love my Mass Effect one? <laughs> uh yeah. Mm. Oh, can't believe you're doing this to me. I volunteered to come on to do this. <laughs> the gameplay is really experimental in a lot of ways, and they're doing so much heavy lifting trying to bring this whole experience together and the fact that they do and it's not a complete disastrous mess is actually really impressive and in many ways i actually do think that the complaints about the the gameplay and even the mako are a tad overrated like i was actually when i was driving especially in legendary edition when i was driving around the mako um in the uh, the initial planet where you go and get um liara 
I was having a good time uh, firing off the tank cannon and watching Geth fly around and be like on fire and everything. It was kind of dope. And there's a certain charm to it being like bouncy castle physics, as somebody called mm-hmm. it. <laughs> <laughs> but also the Mako is freaking like there's way too much of it. And uh, mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, you're constantly in that thing and it is one of the most unpolished parts of the game. Like it really stands out like a sore thumb in a lot of ways. One of my favorite things to do in Legendary Expedition, uh, Edition especially is uh, the Mako. If you like roll up on those Geth walkers, you can kind of knock them over. And like I, I put a picture of it on my social media, but you can kind of like pin them also like you're trying to make them say uncle. <laughs> and it's like, again, you want to talk about like humans doing things not the right way. And everyone's like, okay, we've got these optimized geth walkers built for war and then here comes this camaro with a tank cannon on top of it <laughs> and it rolls up and pins the walker to the ground <laughs> and shepherd yourself stop hitting yourself. uncle <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> um yeah it's uh it's goofy in a way that i love and that's maybe the like yeah the more i think about it, the more i'm like yeah it's it's not perfect but it's also like not completely unplayable i feel like the legendary edition made it like perfectly manageable by modern mm-hmm. standards so it mm-hmm. might be it might have friction but that doesn't mean that it's outright bad yeah austin walker was saying that the friction was like the point and that uh he preferred the friction toward the like almost overbearing polish that you found jank, in mass effect jank. two and three the jank the jank there's I, there's something appealing about it hmm. I, I do think that it definitely has some uh, pacing issues, but uh, upon replaying the original Mass Effect, I was found that I was able to get it. It's a little bit like settling in to the to the universe, and then it kicks yeah. into high gear in the into the second half. So, in in some ways, I can appreciate the way that it takes its time in establishing its universe, even if I think that you know the gathering of the parties, you know, a tad contrived and everything. But yeah, I don't know, like. I, when I look at this game, I'm all over the place on it. I, I don't think that the combat's great, but also I don't think that's a deal breaker. Uh, when I talk about its relative strengths, which is its world building is just S tier, mm-hmm. you know, S tier, mm-hmm. like, and, and it was all established in the original Mass Effect. And if the world building hadn't worked in Mass Effect 1, then we wouldn't have had Mass Effect 2 and 3, or at least people mm-hmm. wouldn't have cared as much. That's true. It's so hard to work through because I think if the, if if we were talking about the legendary edition specifically, this would be an easy answer because like there's something incredible about the legendary edition that you get to like see not just how Mass Effect developed over the years and how they created this trilogy that did something that no other trilogy has really managed to do before, but it also ends up being this. I th- we talked about this on, on our roundtable, I think, but like the idea that this is a time capsule of what development was like on the Xbox 360, that you mm-hmm. can see the different eras of development on an entire console generation in one series. And that's what makes Mass Effect 1 interesting now is you get to be like, right, this is what we thought good games looked like in 2007. And it's completely different now in 2021, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. And I... Mm, this is difficult. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if I can interject as a newbie and just kind of give my point of view from... I gave a pass to System Shock 2. I, I said its uh, gameplay was not as much fun as its story and its setting, and that's still very true. 
Uh, we talked about Terranigma, where the general gameplay is generally very good, but that awful, awful Bloody Mary fight really kind of brought it down for people. That still wasn't enough of a ding to kind of say, okay, this is doesn't deserve to be in the Pantheon. Hmm. I'm going to go with yes, simply because, again, as I said, I do not play RPGs for fantastic polished mechanics. I play them because the um, the setting and the world and the characters and the story, those all take top priority for me. And they're they're great. I can't say too much of a bad word against many of them. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's my point of view from a, a Mass Effect newbie. For Take it for what it's worth. That's the thing about RPGs, isn't it? Where so many of them are these huge, bold, ambitious, wonderful games that just almost necessarily end up being kind of messy as a result mm -hmm. because they're trying to do so much. And the original Mass Effect is truly trying to do so much. Mm -hmm. And I uh, I really respect that. And replaying it you know, in uh, 2021 on Legendary Edition... It really is unlike almost any other game I've ever played, and it continues to be that way. And I, its quirks and its foibles do add a lot of charm to it in much the same way that the original Final Fantasy VIII does. And I, I can almost imagine Nadia going, how dare Boo. you? Boo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So are there is there anything else we want to highlight in terms of the case for it being for uh, and against it being in the Pantheon, Nadia, Eric? I have said my piece. I would say yes, and I gave my reasons why, and uh, I stand by them. I think I ultimately land on yes, just because like this cast of characters is so unique. This world is so unique. Like, I don't think we've sung enough the praises of the cast because you can't sing enough the praises of the cast. Like this is a group of characters that I think it's easy to see why when they released that wallpaper creator where you could make your own cover art with all your own personal squad and all that, like people got so excited for it and we're all posting their own customized box arts. And it's, it's tough to find a series that can ins inspire that, that can, you know, drive that level of, connecting to its individual characters and also arguing over which one is the best because um, it's Morden. It's always Morden. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a yes for me because I also just can't imagine like talking about modern RPGs and even the way we play RPGs nowadays and the way we have action games so ingrained with RPGs these days without talking about Mass Effect. Like I think you can also draw lines back to Mass Effect in terms of looking at why we have RPG elements in Far Cry and stuff like that today, because I think it's very clear to see where some of the ideas came from in, in Mass Effect. Well, I posed the same question to our community, and 36 people said, yes, it deserves to be in the Pantheon, and only two said no. And one of the people who dissented against it was Dr. Horror, and this is what they had to say. On its own terms, my return to the game felt very tedious. I find the control to be very stiff and slow, the dialogue wheels to create artificial and stilted conversations, and the social and romance options to be underdeveloped. Liara appears to be the only real substantial relationship option to build. I tried it immediately in 2012 after playing it through ME2 and 3, loving both, got tired of it shortly after finishing a few of the planets. Then I tried it again this month and didn't get further than the initial Citadel visit. It still felt the same way to me. 
I have not played ME2 or 3 since 2012, so maybe I won't find those as nice these days either, but I do find, feel like my opinion on ME1 was formed back when it came out on PS3 and hasn't changed. So that's that. Um, so there's a lot of interesting discussions about the original Mass Effect. We didn't even talk about uh, the romance options in the original there's Mass Effect. There's not much to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, like that is uh, for all I just sung the praises of the story and the characters, I do understand that the romance options are underdeveloped in many ways, but that's, I just kind of take that for what it was at the time. There's things have improved greatly and Mass Effect walked so every other monster screwing game can run, I suppose. But in yeah. that respect, it like doesn't hold up, right? I mean, if you, I played that romance sequence uh, between uh, Shepard and Liara at PAX and we were all like rolling <laughs> because it's so cheesy. It is so cheesy. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but I I don't really care that there aren't any massive romance options. And mm. that says something to begin with. Uh, I mean, once the fact that Rex is out of the running, why bother? <laughs> that's it. Why bother? That is, that's Period. the weird thing is like the idea that Tally and Garrus aren't romanceable until two. And also like I, we just recorded our, our Mass Effect 2 roundtable recently. So I was thinking a lot about how that game really ups the romance in terms of like you have Thane and you have Jack and you have like way more interesting romance options in general. Um, whereas in Mass Effect 1, you do just have, you know, whichever opposite gender because this was still okay. 2007. Momo. Yeah. Or or the blue lady and that's the one we'll let any Shepard romance. Um, yeah. And that's a whole bucket of bolts otherwise. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, I. I, I've said that I like the Liara romance a lot because it does carry across all three games in a really interesting way, um, even more so than I think the human ones do. Um, I've seen what the... Because I had a playthrough of Mass Effect 1 where I romanced Ashley and it was bad. <laughs> and <laughs> and oh, then no. in Mass Effect 2, I, I dumped her for Miranda and I thought that was funny and it still is funny <laughs> to this day. Um, I made her cry. It was funny. <laughs> yeah, she shows up She shows up, and she's like, oh my God, Shepard, you're alive. And I'm like, yeah, uh, this is Miranda, by the way. <laughs> um, a lot has changed in two years. I died. I came back. I moved on. <laughs> moved on. Third yeah. one, real strong point there. Um, she like, she like, I'm trying to remember it's her. I know Liara kisses you right away because uh, I just replayed that part in Mass Effect 2. But I always thought that was weird. That's been like two years and they're just immediately like blasting you on the face. And I'm like, that's OK. You know, for the let's, let's first reintroduce ourselves first. But um, yeah, the, the romance stuff in one is definitely a knock against it. I think it's up to the par with what you would expect from Bioware at the time, because I mean, how many romance options did KOTOR or Jade Empire have? There weren't that many. I think Jade Empire only had three. Um, and I think KOTOR only had two? Question mark, I think. You know, as much as those games became known for having romance options and having, you know, interesting romances and stuff like that, um, it could have been better, but it also could have been a lot worse. So that's how mm -hmm. I feel about it. I think the thing that was really neat about Mass Effect was that they were really enthralled with the idea of choice-based gameplay when it came to story, which is a, a, a deeply RPG thing, which is why I've always, in some ways, brushed off all of the like focus on the actual gameplay, because to my mind, 
Mass Effect has always been much more about developing your shepherd, developing the the choices that you make within this interactive uh, story. And in that respect, it feels very RPG to me. And mm-hmm. Mass Effect attempted this on a scale that we hadn't really ever seen to that point. And it's pretty remarkable that they carried it through all three games. And it makes me a little sad, honestly, that we're never going to see anything like it again, probably. Like, I just, I don't feel like a AAA developer is willing to commit to two, uh, three full games. Three full games. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't even know when the next Mass Effect is going to show up because that, I mean, they're still working on Dragon Age and and that's got to be years off at this not dragon age but mass effect it has to be like years off at this point and uh it's it is hard to think not just about like a publisher committing to that but also an entire dev team committing to that like keeping that leadership stable the whole way through is also something that you don't always have i i can think of maybe a few studios off the top of my head that have managed it and it's it's such an anomaly and that's why i find it so fascinating and so interesting so man i'm just i'm i'm still on the yay vote i'm i'm still on the yay vote well folks nadia and eric say yes as does our community this is what i will say about mass effect i am not entirely sure that the original game deserves to be in the pantheon i'm also not entirely sure that mass effect 2 and 3 deserve to be in the pantheon because i believe that the Mass Effect trilogy is more than the sum of its parts. I think that mm-hmm. the trilogy as a whole deserves to be in the Pantheon because there are just so many great moments that coalesce into one full and kind of amazing space opera. I don't know if one part necessarily stands above the others because I have my misgivings about all three. Um, yes, we... Uh, I, I think that Mass Effect is a, a little bit similar to Final Fantasy VIII in that you could say, like, it's that's another RPG that's more than the sum of its parts in many ways. And another, like, very ambitious game that really was kind of broken in, but remains very charming to this day and is still very significant and still has the mark of greatness to it. But does it hold up? Uh, that's an open question. I don't know. So <laughs> I... I, I do not object to it going to the Pantheon Hell. I put it into the top 25 RPGs of all time. But if we're like really drilling down and like sitting back and thinking about it, my first thought is, well, I mean, Mass Effect is not just one, any one part. It's the trilogy. Mm-hmm. It is all three parts come into one. And so I, I think it's really noticeable, notable that when we were talking about the original Mass Effect, Mass Effect 2, especially Mass Effect 2, not so much 3, kept coming up because it feels yeah. impossible to talk about a individual mass effect game without talking about the other two as well mm-hmm. yeah it's that's why i'm so happy that the legendary edition like exists at this point because i'm sure anyone who has tried to play mass effect before the legendary edition came out ran into just how convoluted it was like you had to get all three games and like for a long time you could only really play them on Xbox until the PS3 got the collection. And then if you played on the Wii U, you only got to play Mass Effect 3 and you got to play the worst version of Mass Effect 3. So <laughs> Yay. Um, not not just like, you know, you're playing it on the Wii U, but apparently some of the canon choices in that one were really, really bad. So uh, best of luck with that. But it's having one cohesive thing only has like reinforced in my mind that this is like one whole. And so 
I'd almost say if you only have one spot for Mass Effect, it's got to be like the Legendary Edition because mm. I I think that like and and also I'd say if you call yourself an RPG fan, you need to play this trilogy at some point because it is it, it is so influential. I think honestly, it is like when we think to that era of gaming, it is one of the most influential uh, and and like standout pieces of that era uh, alongside things like Bioshock and and Modern Warfare and um it's it's hard to imagine you know talking about anything in that era without talking about mass effect and and how it's had an effect on everything i mean shoot assassin's creed odyssey is influenced by mass effect like that's wild and um that's you know that just goes to show like this is a really incredible series yeah yeah it's like the lord of the rings trilogy of video games right i mean you wouldn't necessarily shout out and in like we all have fond memories of you know fellowship of the ring or two towers or return of the king but we wouldn't necessarily shout them out as like well this one deserves to be in the pantheon and this one doesn't necessarily like they're all of a piece right they all flow from one uh one story to the next and they all hold up just fine on their own you know watching them and everything but you think of it as a, a total whole right and that's what the mass effect trilogy is anyway but also fellowship is the best fellowship <laughs> is the best yeah i agree with that <laughs> and with that mass effect goes into the pantheon thank you so much to everybody for voting and participating in what was a very fun monthly game club the next game that we're going to be taking on is Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne. And that's going to be luck. a great one. So, <laughs> All right. And that is it for our Mass Effect Pantheon of the Game Club episode. Thanks to everybody for listening and once again for supporting us at the $10 level and above. And make sure to go listen to the rest of our Pantheon of the Blood God episodes. We've covered Lufia 2 and Final Fantasy 8 and System Shock 2 all to various degrees in Skies of Arcadia. And I think um, over time, we've really uh, refined the format. And I think that each time we get a little bit better and a little more in-depth. And I think this was uh, the best one yet. And I've been uh, really enjoying it. Thank you, as always, Eric, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And please promote everything uh, one more time for our audience. Hello, I'm Eric Van Allen. You can find me shitposting online at Simusi. That's S-E-A-M-O-O-S-I on Twitter. I got some good ones on there lately. You're going to want to check it out. <laughs> um, and also, uh, I'm I'm a reporter over at Destructoid. You can follow all my coverage over there. I'm also one half of Normandy FM, a retrospective podcast that's currently working its way through The Last of Us Part 2. Um, we are working on whatever is coming after that. It may get a little strange in the context of life. Hint, hint. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, I don't know. I just appear elsewhere and everywhere. I'm on a lot of podcasts and stuff these days. Cause it turns out that, uh, being a mass effect person is, is good for my brand right now. So it would be, yeah. um, and, and if y'all ever want to do a Pantheon about a Tales game, you want to talk about some Tales of Symphonia up in here. You want to talk oh, about boy. some Tales of Vesperia. Ooh. We, we are definitely have plans to get you on here to talk about Tales. Do not worry. I, I am so happy that this year is coalescing to be the year of my brand. Like Mass Everything Effect, Tales, Guilty Gear. Like it's just all my stuff and I'm loving it. 
Neo, the world ends with how did how did 2021 turn into a year where there is a new Tales game, a new Mass Effect game, and a sequel to The World Ends with You? That's like my three favorite things right there. Can we get another like re-release of Final Fantasy X, and then we'll just like round the whole thing out? We'll be back as always next month to add another game to the Pantheon. But until then, for Eric, Nani, myself, thanks for listening, and happy adventuring. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.